Uh, hello, everyone. Uh, sorry for today, uh, slight technical issue. Um, uh, but today we have a very exciting program, so uh, you will enjoy it very much. We have a line of uh, great speakers and a very exciting topic update. And then uh, uh, we also include this, uh, Dr. Uh, uh, David Levy, uh, uh, one of the co-founders, discoverer of the Shoemaker Levy 9, uh, that, which was a, a very important event triggering the planetary defense. Uh, defense effort. Uh, so before we start the program and then introduce the main um, moderator lead of the event today, I have a few logistics to go through. Uh, this is the AIW Los Angeles Las Vegas section uh, event. Um, and uh, uh, we have coffee, actually coffee in the kitchen. So welcome to enjoy it. We have some uh, snacks, cookies there as well, hot water, tea, you're welcome to enjoy them. And uh, during the lunch time, but because of the delay, we, we might have to cut short for the lunch time. But you are welcome just walk, you know, across three within one minute. There's a cafe. Uh, you are welcome just to uh, grab your lunch uh, and uh, uh, enjoy. Or if you want to order online, I, I sent you the links. You can try to order as a delivery. Um, the restroom is right outside here. We need to wait uh, to the librarian to get the, uh, the door open for you. Uh, so there's a Wi-Fi here. Uh, you just connect to the LA County Library Wi-Fi and go to the uh, website, and then it will show the uh, at the bottom uh, to uh, to select connect, and then you connect to the free Wi-Fi here. So uh, I think that's all. This we have a check-in table there. If you pick up, sign in, pick up your badge. Uh, please look at it. Um, for people here and also online, uh, um, if you membership is due or uh, coming due or overdue, please take a look. Uh, actually, uh, we need your support because uh, our national office actually evaluate us from the number of attendees. So if you are a member, uh, please don't, uh, even if you are educated, free membership, you know, please still, you need to renew every year. If you don't respond, uh, they will just uh, remove you. Uh, the more members, the better, but our event is open to everybody. So if you're not member, that's fine. But if you are interested in our membership, uh, come to me. I can explain to you uh, about the benefit and how to join. And there are brochure on the table. So uh, uh, it's great benefit for you. And then we need your support. And uh, again, as I said, if we have more members and uh, we have more support from national. Uh, so uh, the other thing is, of course, you don't, you're not required to uh, to join the membership to attend an event or speak in our event, but there are some additional benefits you will enjoy. Um, so, and also uh, we started recording. Um, if anybody online or here, the speaker, you feel you don't want to be recorded, please let me and Dr. Melanie know about it. We'll remove you from the recording. Uh, and we'll post it online afterwards. Um, all right, thank you so much. So let me introduce our uh, uh, leader. Uh, of this meeting and also the national leader for the planetary defense effort, uh, Dr. Nahu Menomet from Aerospace Corporation. He's a project lead in maybe Beijing Builders in Aerospace uh, Corporation. And uh, he is a leader in planetary defense, also the Artemis uh, program. So thank you, uh, Dr. Menomet, for helping us uh, for this effort. So uh, thank you so much. So it's all yours. Thank you, Ken, and thank you, everyone, for attending this uh, exciting event. Obviously, we are celebrating 
anniversary of the Tunguska event, that's the asteroid day, uh, which occurred on June the 30th of 1908. Guess what? Over Russia, right? So because of the relevance of what explodes over Russia, we will start with an interesting video. Some of you might remember the event that occurred about 10 years ago. And I will ask Ken if you can play this short video now. I, I believe that we can now hear it. What exploded over Russia? Presented by Science at NASA. When the sun rose over Russia's Ural Mountains on Friday, February 15th, many residents of nearby Chelyabinsk already knew that a space rock was coming. Later that day, an asteroid named 2012 DA-14 would pass by Earth only 17,200 miles above Indonesia. There was no danger of a collision, NASA assured the public. Maybe that's why, when the morning sky lit up with a second sun and a shockwave shattered windows in hundreds of buildings around Chelyabinsk, only a few people picking themselves off the ground figured it out right away. This was not a crashing plane or a rocket attack. It was a meteor strike, the most powerful since the Tunguska event of 1908, says Bill Cook of NASA's Meteoroid Environment Office. In a one-in-a-million coincidence that still has NASA experts shaking their heads, a small asteroid completely unrelated to 2012 DA-14 struck Earth only hours before the publicized event. These are rare events, and it is incredible to see them happening on the same day says Paul Chodas of NASA's Near-Earth Object Program at JPL. Researchers have since pieced together what happened. The most telling information came from a network of infrasound sensors operated by the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty Organization. Their purpose is to monitor nuclear explosions. Infrasound is a type of very low-frequency sound wave that only elephants, homing pigeons, and a few other animals can hear. It turns out that meteors entering Earth's atmosphere cause ripples of infrasound to spread through the air of our planet. By analyzing infrasound records, it is possible to learn how long a meteor was in the air, which direction it traveled, and how much energy it unleashed. The Russian meteor's infrasound signal was detected by multiple stations, including one in Alaska more than 6,500 kilometers from Chelyabinsk. Western Ontario professor of physics Peter Brown analyzed the data. The asteroid was about 17 meters in diameter and weighed approximately 10,000 metric tons, he reports. It struck Earth's atmosphere at 40,000 miles per hour and broke apart about 12 to 15 miles above Earth's surface. The energy of the resulting explosion exceeded 470 kilotons of TNT. For comparison, the first atomic bombs produced only 15 to 20 kilotons. Based on the trajectory of the fireball, analysts have also plotted its orbit. It originally came from the asteroid belt, about 2.5 times farther from the sun than Earth, says Cook. Comparing the orbit of the Russian meteor to that of 2012 DA-14, NASA orbit analysts have shown that there is no connection between the two. These are independent objects, Cook says. The fact that they reached Earth on the same day, one just a little closer than the other, appears to be a complete coincidence. Infrasound records confirm that the meteor entered the atmosphere at a shallow angle of about 20 degrees and lasted more than 30 seconds before it exploded. The loud report, which was heard and felt for hundreds of miles, marked the beginning of a scientific scavenger hunt. Thousands of fragments of the meteor are now scattered across the Ural countryside, and a small fraction have already been found. Preliminary reports, mainly communicated through the media, suggest that the asteroid was made mostly of stone with a bit of iron. In other words, a typical asteroid from beyond the orbit of Mars, says Cook. There are millions more just like it.
And that is something to think about as the cleanup in Chelyabinsk continues. For more news about things coming out of the blue, visit science.nasa.gov. Thank you. Um, as I woke up this morning, I was thinking, what would have happened if that event had occurred today over Russia and not 10 years ago? Somebody would get mixed up with something, right? Is this the beginning of a big next conflict? That's why we are here today, to understand how events like this could trigger unexpected concerns. So uh, we are here today to discuss the topic of planetary defense from asteroids. And we know that there is a, an issue of planetary defense from other world events that are occurring literally right this minute uh, over Russia. Um, so now we need to switch to my laptop for a minute, if possible, Ken. I think we need um, your cable to hook up over there because I prepared. Thank you. Let me see my screen. Yeah. Okay. I just say if you say I'm too. Oh, okay. Show on Zoom? Yeah. Okay, give me one minute here. We didn't have to go to the other. Yeah. Window, window, right in the middle. And select this one, yeah. Yeah, you should know the Oh, oh this one, you can select this one, yeah. This one? Yeah, sure. There we go. Okay. Okay. Um, so let's see, what do we have here? This is the JPL website that shows what objects are uh, asteroids and uh, uh, or comets that are zipping by our planet right this minute, as of today. So I'm going to do a reality check. I think this should be up to date as of today. Uh, and I'm going to switch it to uh, the distances, uh, the, the units are the distance between here and the moon. And so we see that today, which is 24 of June, we have three objects that are passing uh, very close to our planet. Uh, one of them is in fact passing near our planet at a smaller distance between us and the moon, and so on and so forth and so forth. So um, in the next 60 days or so, there's going to be uh, a large amount of objects. These are all asteroids that are passing next to our planet. Luckily, they are not going to impact us. They are just dipping by. But any of these could impact us without warning and create a Chelyabinsk event, just like what we saw a moment ago that occurred 10 years ago. That could happen literally every, any second. We just cannot, we are not prepared. That's why we are here to raise awareness to this um, concern, the hazard from asteroids and comets. So 
we are going to come back to it at the end of the day, depending on the amount of time that we have left. But I invite everyone here and online to visit the JPL website. It's called CINEOS. Uh, it's a very, very cool uh, resource to learn about everything that you want to know about asteroids and comets that pass next to our planet. Um, let's see how many have been discovered to date. So uh, on the same website, uh, we see that as of a couple of days ago, uh, worldwide observers have found uh, over 32,000 near-Earth objects that are made out of asteroids, comets. Some of them are quite large. You can see um, some 800 that are kilometer and larger. These are global events if they had collided with our planet and so on and so forth. Potentially hazardous asteroids are those that have some likelihood of colliding with a planet in probably the distant future. But that's where the concern is. I mean, if you look at the rate of discovery, the rate of discovery is increasing because the more telescopes we aim at the sky, we're finding more and more and more and more. There is a good message in this in this uh, slide, which is the red big ones here, down here. You can see that we are not finding very many of these, which means that to date we have found the vast majority of the really big ones that can cause global destruction. But those that are regional or continental are still in a discovery phase, which will take another perhaps couple of decades to hopefully flatten out and find the majority of them that it's going to be in the hundreds of thousands. So we are really in the dark ages as of knowing what's out there as of today. Uh, that's the biggest gap today in planetary defense, finding them before they find us. That's where the majority of the resources and effort are um, centered around finding those uh, medium and small size objects that can destroy a city, a country, and even a part of a continent. What does actually impact with our planet? We do have evidence that a large number of the smaller ones impact with our planet. That's again displayed in the same part of the same JPL uh, uh, website. Uh, you can hover over every, each and every one of those events and see that the big red one here is the Chelyabinsk event that we saw the video just a moment ago. So all of these are captured right here on that um, uh, evidence here. Let's see, these are uh, events that are captured by government satellites that are designed to catch explosions in the atmosphere. And they catch explosions that are not man-made. They are explosions that are made by those cosmic objects that are usually quite small. In the last three and a half decades, there's almost a thousand entries of objects that did collide with our planet, except they were mostly small and not causing any major damage. But we saw earlier that some large objects could actually impact with our planet, except they decided to, uh, to uh, miss us. Here's an object which is 
in the hundreds of meters, an object in that size would cause the destruction of a good portion of a continent. That's a concern. Uh, that object was discovered about 11 years ago. No, 21 years ago, right? That's enough time to do something about it. If somebody told us that this object is going to collide with our planet in 21 years, we could build the deflectors, the systems that would eliminate the threat. But we didn't do that because obviously we were not ready. If we don't have systems that are pre-built and sitting on the ground ready to tackle some of those short events, we will not be ready for those uh, concerns. As you can see, some of these are quite large. This uh, size object can destroy a city, uh, a large city, um, or even a small country. So uh, we are faced with over 30,000 objects that have been discovered. There's probably going to be hundreds of thousands in the next 10, 20 years that are going to be discovered by additional uh, sensors. I'm going to talk about it. And some of our speakers are actually are going to talk about um, methods of finding them, characterizing them, that are built in the next in the near future. So I think that uh, okay. One more thing that I wanted to do here before we switch to our speakers is uh, a special celebration today. The celebration is of the 30 years of the collision of uh, the comet Shoemaker-Levy with the planet of Jupiter. It's a short video, and I think if you can play the second video there, I mean, you might have to share your screen now. Oh. So, uh, your email? It's the second link in the email. Mm -hmm. Sorry about the tech issues here. Not sure if this has sound or not. Yeah, yeah, because I have to. On the planet Jupiter, about 1993, we... when a two mile wide fragment of the comet traveling 40 miles a second, pieces of the comet that will hit Jupiter, three fragments are scheduled to hit the planet, will slam into the same area, the same spot on the planet Jupiter. About 1993, we learned that there was a comet. Uh, heading for Jupiter. Comet Shoemaker-Levy 9 was a comet that was discovered by Eugene and Carolyn Shoemaker and David Levy. It was shown to be broken up into a bunch of pieces. They traced back the orbit and this thing had gone by Jupiter and gotten disrupted. And then they tracked the orbit forward and found out these are going to hit Jupiter. And that got everyone excited. But this is the first time that these impacts have been observed. Impacts were very important in formation of everything. We could observe an impact on another planet. Scientists still don't know what they're going to see. The whole world community, scientific community, was preparing to observe these events. Any telescopes that could observe the impacts did. Many, many ground-based telescopes. The Hubble Space Telescope. All of the images from Hubble that went on the web suddenly got everyone's attention. Which was a real key to many of the scientific results. Also, Galileo 
which was on the way to Jupiter at the time. The NASA Infrared Telescope facility had a campaign dedicated to observing Shoemaker-Levy. 25 years ago, that was my first observing run ever. We're starting tonight with the near-infrared spectrometer. God, that's gorgeous. And we're seeing something pop up on the screen, and we're just shouting. <laughs> Literally dancing about it. And we saw this bright thing just light up, and it was like, Yes, we did it. We were all like kids in a candy store, I guess. Well, the energy we saw wasn't just the impact itself, but it was the sort of splashback. And when those pieces plowed into the atmosphere, they brought up big plumes of material that rained back down on the upper part of the atmosphere. We were able to measure changes in the upper atmosphere of Jupiter. It taught us a great deal about how impacts take place. Scientists say if a fragment the same size hit Earth, it would leave a crater the size of Rhode Island. It was one of those wake-up calls. And here it is, this awakening. They kind of precipitated this NASA planetary defense coordination office. To make sure to find the asteroids that come close to Earth and the comets that come close to Earth, get them cataloged, figure out where they've been and where they're going to be in the future just so we understand are we at risk of being impacted on the Earth? So that's a big component of what NASA does now, it has planetary defense to find potential impacts of the Earth and protecting it. Thank you, uh, Ken. And I think at this point we'll break with my part of it and we'll switch to the speakers. Uh, at the end of the day, we'll come back to what can we do about deflection of comets and asteroids with some of the studies that we've done at the Aerospace Corporation. That's the company at which I am employed. The first speaker is Professor Amy Meinzer. Uh, Amy, are you online? I am. Can you hear me? Very well. Hello, Amy, and good to meet you again after a very short time at the conference. Likewise. So, uh, maybe the best thing to do is to let you present yourself and your talk. Thank you, Amy, for joining us today. Absolutely. Uh, and let's see, let me share my screen here really fast. Okay. Can everybody see that? Yes. Excellent. Yes. Okay. Can. Wonderful. And and thank you so much for the, the really great introduction, um, Nahum, because I think it's, it's, uh, it's really interesting as a topic to think about just the kind of uh, risk that asteroids and comets pose in context to all the other risks. <clears throat> excuse me, that we face as humanity on, on planet Earth. So it's important to kind of keep this one in context. I guess the way I like to think about this is that these are uh, very rare events, but the consequences can be severe. And so if you think about just, you know, what is sort of an appropriate response, uh, you might consider them to be sort of a medium risk. In other words, likelihood is very low, but because the consequences can be potentially quite severe, uh, we would like to do something about it. And so the question is, what is sort of a sensible response to this, this type of risk? Uh, so I'll talk today a little bit about uh, the couple projects I'm working on, in particular, uh, a new observatory we're engaged in building right now called the Near-Earth Object Surveyor. And we'll tell you a little bit about just, you know, why are we doing this and, and what do we hope to achieve with it? Uh, but first, I do really like to kind of take a step back and just uh, define terms really quickly, uh, just so folks can kind of get oriented. In general, most of the small bodies in our solar system really are, are, are perfectly harmless. They are between Mars and Jupiter in the main asteroid belt. They stay there. Uh, they're very dynamically stable. Uh, they'll typically stay put in these orbits for hundreds of millions to billions of years uh, right here between Mars and Jupiter. 
But occasionally, there are a couple of forces that can act on them that can perturb their orbits and cause them to cross out of this, this very safe zone uh, here between Mars and Jupiter. Eventually, what can happen is uh, the gentle pressure of radiation on the, of light, of sunlight on the objects, can actually uh, slowly cause their orbits to drift. And that's a very slow process. Again, we're talking many millions of years. Uh, but the thing is, eventually, they can fall into gravitational resonances with some of the planets. And in particular, Jupiter, Mars, Saturn uh, have really powerful gravity. And, and so you can imagine that it's quite possible that uh, kind of a little bit of an encounter with one of these graduate, uh, gravitational resonances can really suddenly change uh, an asteroid's orbit. And you can sort of get a sense of it, of, of the power of gravity sculpting uh, the, the orbits of these objects by just looking at this, at this uh, map. These are known objects. There are roughly a million main belt asteroids that we know about today. Uh, but this represents, we think, a very small fraction of the total that are out there. But if you kind of look at the cloud, you can see there are these sort of triangular structures here. Three, uh, three blobs of asteroids that are sort of getting pulled around. And then it's a little hard to see, but these blue blobs right here and here are caused by Jupiter. So all of these effects, these are gravitational resonances as Jupiter's powerful gravity is essentially trapping these objects and kind of dragging them along with it. Uh, so you can see basically it's, if you, if you get into one of these resonance zones with one of the planets, uh, and there are lots of them, these are a couple of the obvious ones, um, you can suddenly change an object's orbit. And at this point now it can kind of leak out of the main belt. And, and generally speaking, one of a few things happens either the asteroid can uh, can actually hit the sun, and we do have lots of video of that from uh, from our satellites that are currently observing the sun. It's actually really fascinating. Uh, the object can, of course, get ejected back out again. So in other words, it can kind of leak inward and then hit a resonance and, and get slung, slung outward. The other option is it can hit a planet. And of course, occasionally that, that planet is Earth. So the red objects in here have made the transition from the main belt and into what we call near-Earth object space meaning uh, there's a mathematical definition. It just means that their perihelion uh, gets within 1.3 astronomical units of, of the sun. So in other words, they become, uh, they, they just get into the region around the earth. It doesn't mean though that they have any reasonable chance of impacting it, however. Uh, so as of today, uh, like you saw, we know of about roughly 30,000 of these objects and, and more are getting discovered every day. Uh, a little bit about terminology, just to, to clarify a couple of things. When we say near earth objects, uh, and again, these are the ones that have the fairly low perihelia, uh, closest point in their orbit to the sun. Uh, we are talking about both asteroids and cometary bodies. Uh, I like to think of these as sort of two sides of the same coin with asteroids uh, really having a great variety of densities and internal structures and compositions. But sort of generally speaking, they tend to be rockier bodies. Uh, probably formed closer into the sun originally. Uh, on the other side of the coin, you have comets, which are weakly held together and much more friable, crumbly material. Uh, and they tend to have a lot more volatile ices mixed into the, to their matrices. So basically water ice, carbon dioxide ice, uh, ammonia ice, all kinds of things all sort of mixed together. Uh, but we now know that these are, these are kind of sides of a spectrum. And we see objects that kind of share characteristics with both types uh, in the middle somewhere. So for example, occasionally we'll see something that looks like a perfectly normal main belt asteroid that'll all of a sudden sprout a tail consistent with cometary activity. Uh, and so that's kind of interesting. But anyway, point being roughly about five to 15% of all the near earth objects that we know about are actually comets. 
so they are a, a non-insignificant portion of the of the near-Earth optic population. And of course, some of them are, are really coming from very distant or orbits out in the Oort cloud, uh, and we care about those too. Now, there's another little bit of terminology here um, that uh, Nahum alluded to earlier. When we call something potentially hazardous, what we specifically mean by that is that not all NEOs are equally hazardous from an impact perspective. Some have orbits that even though they get sort of reasonably close uh, to the Earth's orbit, they're not that close and they really don't have any realistic chance of an impact. However, there's a little bit of an exception. The population we really pay careful attention to is this group here. And what specifically is meant here is that the object's orbit and the Earth's orbit have a point of relatively close intersection of about 0.05 astronomical units, so 5% of the Earth-Sun distance. Um, those objects are ones we really care about because anytime you have the potential for close approaches, uh, obviously it greatly increases the chances of an impact. It doesn't mean, however, that the object and the Earth would ever be at the same place at the same time. So in, in some sense, you could call these perfectly harmless objects most of the time, right? Because the object and the Earth don't actually intersect. But because the orbits get close, this is the population we really are paying attention to from a hazard perspective. And it's really what we're interested in finding. Uh, okay, so let's keep going here. Uh, so from my perspective, you know, when I look at this problem, there are a couple of things that I personally think are, are, are really interesting to try to answer. Uh, and they're, they're pretty straightforward. It's just, you know, when would the next major impact be and how bad might it be? Uh, the when part really comes from, uh, to answer that really comes from doing a comprehensive and thorough survey that is, is uh, sensitive enough to spot most of the population that is large enough to be worrisome. And then the how bad part really comes from quantifying the impact energy. So if we just, you know, this is freshman physics equation here, but the impact energy really scales as the mass times the velocity squared. And of course, if we found the object and discovered it and gotten an orbit uh, of, that's good enough to predict that there is an impact, of course, we know the velocity. So we get that more or less for free. But then the next parameter of interest is, is the mass. And that, of course, really scales as the density times the volume or density times the diameter cubed. So the point being, diameter has a very strong lever arm on the impact energy. Small changes in diameter, because it goes as the cube, result in very big changes to the impact energy. So it's really important to know how big the object is. And then of course, there are all the other parameters we'd like to know, such as the density, um, but they just don't have as strong a lever on the impact energy as the diameter. That's the thing we really care about a lot. Um, although that said, we obviously care a great deal about all the other parameters as well. Uh, it's just when you're sort of triaging to figure out which are the objects that are the uh, ones we really wanna pay most attention to, uh, first thing we wanna know is where where is it? What is its orbit? How fast is it moving? What's its diameter? Uh, then we'd like to know density, porosity, shape, spin state, whether it has binaries or anything like that. Okay, so let's kind of keep going. Um, so, you know, in thinking about this, uh, we're working on a, a new project that is really dedicated to answering these two questions, when and how bad. Uh, and that is, it's called the Near-Earth Object Surveyor Mission. Uh, the idea is to really respond to uh, this law that was passed in 2005, which basically requires that NASA go out and find more than 90% of near-Earth objects larger than 140 meters in diameter, it was supposed to have been done by 2020, and obviously that ship has sailed. But we want to try to do our very best to find as many of these objects as we can and try to quantify their, their potential for impact as well as um, the impact energy. 
And so to do this, we, we came up with a design that's actually an infrared space telescope. So uh, it's not looking at visible light wavelengths uh, like most of the ground-based facilities are, uh, but instead it's, it'll be searching for the heat emitted by the bodies. Now, one quick thing, why 140 meters? That's sort of a weird number. Uh, and the answer to that is uh, there've been a couple of really pretty substantial studies that were done to try to figure out, well, how, how should we approach this problem? Should we start from the largest objects first and work our way down in size? Or should we start from the small sizes first and work our way up? Uh, what, would, what would best retire the hazard? And, then, and if you, you know, at what size do you, do you say good enough? Uh, so what they have done is basically kind of conducted um, studies sort of from an actuarial point of view, or almost like an insurance company would think of it. How do you retire the risk? Uh, and if it turns out that the way the math sort of works out is you want to start with the largest objects first and discover as many of those as you can down to this 140 meter limit, at which point now you've retired the vast majority of the risk from objects that you don't know about uh, in the asteroid population. And so um, at that point, you've got remaining residual risk that's sort of balanced between smaller ab objects, smaller asteroids, I should say, and long period comets. Uh, so anyway, that's that's what the R objective is, is to really go out and try to find 90% of objects that are that are really big enough to cause what we would call here, this would be severe regional damage, I guess would be a good way to put it. Uh, big enough to, to cause really serious damage to an area, say perhaps about the size of Southern California. And then global economic impact effects uh, would be felt. Okay, so uh, in other words, uh, this telescope is, is really just designed to go out and see what is out there and do a comprehensive enough survey so that we have a pretty good idea of whether or not anything is coming that we need to worry about. Uh, of course, you know, we've seen some of this already, but it, it just sort of bears reminding that, you know, these events really are quite stochastic. They're pretty random. Uh, I find it quite amazing that there were two objects that just happened to make a very close approach on one single day. Uh, and it, it is really quite remarkable. It, but total cosmic coincidence and looking at the orbits of the two objects, they really were completely different. However, this one that impacted, uh, the reason it impacted without warning is because a couple of things. You can see uh, in the sky, it's, it's early morning and the object came from a direction very close to the direction of the sun on the sky. That's a, a direction that telescopes on the ground, especially uh, look, working at optical wavelengths, you just can't look. Uh, because the sky is so bright uh, that it's uh, you're just not able to really see anything effectively. So it came from a direction on the sky that's very close to the sun. Also, this object was tiny uh, from an observer's point of view. This is 17 meters across. It's a really, really, really small object, which means it has to be very close before our current system of telescopes could actually spot it. So that's why it wasn't spotted beforehand. Wrong direction on the sky, too small. Uh, that said, even 17 meters was enough to send about 1,600 people to the hospital, mostly from injuries uh, relating to the glass of, uh, glass of windows blowing out and, and shattering. Um, so in any event, um, that's, that's what a, a very small object is capable of doing. Uh, larger ones obviously can cause a lot more damage. And of course, you know, it really kind of boils down to this question. How, do, how often does this really happen? And do we need to be doing something about it? And if so, what are we doing? Um, so, of course, the really big event uh, that uh, dramatically changed life on Earth was, was, of course, this very famous one that occurred in the Gulf of Mexico roughly 66 million years ago or so. And this was a really very large object, somewhere in the neighborhood of 5 to 10 kilometers across, 
Uh, and it, it did indeed uh, wipe out a, just a huge fraction of species on Earth. Um, you can see here, this is sort of the diversification of life as a function of time, uh, where the yellow triangles kind of mark major extinction events. And, and this, this is thought to have been the, the, uh, the impactor here. Uh, so life does eventually recover, but it took millions of years to, to reach its former level of diversity. Uh, so in any event, um, there are lots of craters found on Earth and, of course, on the moon that give us a sense of the statistics. And, of course, the, you know, the Shoemaker-Levy 9 uh, impact, uh, from my standpoint, seems to have really kick-started the entire planetary defense program or really given it a, a much-needed shot in the arm to try to uh, build out the network of telescopes deliberately searching for these objects. And of course, the other thing that, uh, that came into play as well is the development of, of modern electronic sensors uh, that can greatly uh, increase the capability for being able to spot moving objects. So again, you know, these are very infrequent events. Uh, they don't happen very often. We'll talk a little more about the statistics very quickly. But uh, one thing that is clear from doing some of the studies on this is that you really do need to find the objects. If you actually want to be able to move something out of the way, you, you really do need to have years to decades to be able to do it effectively. Uh, it, it, if you really only have a matter of months, of course, there's, there's not a whole lot you can do other than try to move people out of the way or what we call civil defense. Um, but even a, a fairly modest sized object in the 100 meter or so range, it really takes a lot of energy to move it enough to be able to miss the Earth. Uh, and various studies of, you know, what, how much energy does it really take using different techniques of some, ranging from simply bumping into it or the so-called kinetic technique uh, to, to other more exotic techniques or more difficult techniques. Uh, they, it just takes a long time. And if nothing else, we know that it takes us a few years at least to build a spacecraft uh, capable of delivering such an important payload to move an object. So we'd really like to find these things years to decades out. And we want to design our survey strategies accordingly. So from my standpoint, the sensible thing to do is design a good survey uh, and operate it such that you can see the asteroids when they're a long way away from any potential impact. Okay, so uh, originally NASA was given the goal of finding 90% of the one kilometer near Earth asteroids. Uh, that was back in 1998. And we believe that that goal was achieved somewhere in the timeframe of about 2010 to 2011. And now of course we're working on the, the smaller population. Uh, NASA's Planetary Defense Coordination Office uh, actually was formed uh, relatively recently, I think in about 2016 or so, or 2017, it was actually formally chartered. Uh, and that's the office that is tasked with managing this program. Uh, the current suite of surveys right now includes uh, fairly modest sized ground-based telescopes. These are sort of uh, one to two meter class telescopes. They're actually not that big. Uh, and they are finding the bulk of the objects today. We also have a single telescope in space operating in infrared wavelengths, and that is called NEOWISE. I'll talk a little bit about that very briefly. Uh, but that's what we've got today. And as Nahum mentioned, you know, the number of discoveries is, is going up, 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 because uh, we haven't exhausted the supply of objects. In fact, we haven't come anywhere close. The good news is we really do think we have found the majority of the very big ones, the ones that are truly capable of causing uh, global extinction events. Uh, those, we think we found more than 90% of them, uh, but for objects that are smaller, uh, the number's just going up. And as of today, we think that we found sort of a roughly in the neighborhood of about 38% or so of objects in that 140 meter and larger category of the near-Earth asteroids, uh, leaving the remaining uh, 60 or so percent left to be found. At our current rate of discovery, we think it will take more than 30 years to get to the 90% mark, unless we do something different. 
So the something different is uh, a couple of telescopes that will hopefully improve our sensitivity, including the Earth objects surveyor. And of course, uh, on, we want to be able to answer the how bad question. You know, it, it, uh, it, it isn't really a very big difference in size, just to illustrate the fact that the, the, the impact of the diameter uh, on the impact energy is, is pretty substantial because of that diameter cubed. Uh, you can see here, you know, the Chelyabinsk object at 17 meters across, a regular stony object, broke a lot of windows, created many small fragments, but there was no big central crater except for this hole in an icy lake that's about six meters across. On the flip side, uh, this object that formed this kilometer-wide crater in Arizona uh, was about 50 meters across, so not that much larger. It was made out of iron instead of stone, so its density was higher. But the point is, uh, it wasn't orders of magnitudes uh, times bigger, it was just a little bit bigger. And instead, the difference is, uh, is quite substantial. So you really, uh, the impact energy goes up very steeply with just small increases in size. Uh, so we'd like to be able to measure the sizes of the objects with an infrared telescope that's measuring the heat they emit. We are able to do that. And we can actually, uh, with two infrared wavelengths uh, sampling the, the heat that's coming off of the body, we can actually do a pretty good job of, of a couple of things. One, we're very sensitive to the dark objects in the population. And it turns out that roughly sort of about 40% or so of the near-Earth objects actually are, are quite dark. Uh, meaning that their surfaces are, are made of a sort of a darker, more carbon-rich type of material, um, and therefore they're just optically more, more dim. They're, they're harder to spot with a visible telescope. You can see here, as a function of wavelength, uh, uh, two objects, one with about a 3% reflectivity and one with a 20-ish percent reflectivity, are very different in their brightness at visible wavelengths. So the darker object, uh, the one with the darker surface in optical wavelengths, is, is going to be almost a factor of 10 dimmer than the object that's more of a gray color. But in infrared wavelengths, when we're looking at the heat they're, emit, they're emitting, it, it really doesn't make much difference. So good at spotting the dark objects. And we can also use uh, our knowledge of where the peak temperature is for the object to back out its size and get a pretty good estimate of the size from the infrared measurements. Our current infrared satellite was actually not originally designed at all to look at asteroids. Uh, it had a completely different purpose. Um, the principal investigator is Ned Wright from UCLA. And this telescope uh, launched in 2009 was uh, devoted to surveying the whole sky, looking mostly for very cold stars and ultra-luminous galaxies. It turned out to be pretty good at spotting asteroids, however, most of which though are in the main belt between Mars and Jupiter. However, we have seen a pretty substantial sample of NEOs, a couple thousand now, and that's allowed us to get an estimate of how many are truly bright and how many are dark. Uh, so that's been really helpful the telescope is still operating well beyond its design life, which was originally supposed to be six months, uh, plus an in-orbit checkout period of one month. And uh, so it's been it's been going a long time in an extended mission. It will re-enter the Earth's atmosphere, though we believe in about March of 2025. So it's ending. It's it's nearing the end of its life. To that end, we're really trying to build out the next version of this telescope. Um, so I'll just quickly skip through this here. This is what it will look like. Uh, the Near-Earth Object Surveyor is basically taking the WISE design and kind of permuting it so that it's uh, really truly designed for looking for hazardous asteroids and comets uh, with the goal of reaching that 90% mark after about 10 years of operations. Uh, it will launch in September of 2027 and it'll go into a halo orbit outside the L1 Lagrange point just beyond the orbit of our moon. Uh, the telescope is rather modest in size at about 50 centimeters, but uh, it does have a field of view now that allows us to look pretty close to the sun. 
And in fact, uh, here's a good example. If we're looking kind of quote unquote top down on the solar system with the sun in the center, here's a model population of asteroids in this potentially hazardous category, larger than about 50 meters. So larger than uh, meteor crater sized and not basically. And here's where we think they are roughly in this model. Uh, NEO-wise, our current existing ground-based telescope is, is really narrowly constrained in where it can look. It just wasn't designed to do that. But Near-Earth Object Surveyor, uh, we're hoping to be able to point it relatively close to the sun so we can look into this part of the sky where it's, it's hard for ground-based telescopes to get at uh, because the sky is bright. So the ground-based telescopes generally are looking through the nighttime direction. Uh, they can see down here a little bit, but the sky is bright and the Earth is rotating, so you don't have very long to do it. The idea for us is to try to spot these objects when they're quite a ways away from the Earth and see them uh, well in advance of any potential close approaches, and then also measure their sizes. So uh, that's the observatory in a nutshell. It's uh, about 22 feet tall overall, roughly, maybe 20 feet tall. And uh, it is designed to last for at least five years, uh, although we carry a lot of extra propellant. Hopefully we can get longer out of it. Uh, and the key thing is to uh, basically sense the heat from the telescope or from the asteroid by keeping the telescope nice and cold and equipping it with some very modern infrared detector arrays. So in any event, um, we are speeding ahead. The project is uh, past its confirmation review, meaning that we're now in the uh, phase C construction, uh, critical design and construction phase. And uh, we're working away through various reviews. Uh, a lot of progress has been made to date, particularly in, in terms of procuring the focal planes, the detectors uh, that we need, the camera chips. And we're uh, real busy making the telescope right now. So in any event, these are just some pretty pictures of the hardware uh, going together. And in the end, uh, the goal is to, out of all of the things in the sky, dig out the asteroids. Now, these are just the background asteroids, the ones we don't care about, the main belt. The ones we're really after are ones like this one, this potentially hazardous asteroid. You can see its rate of motion is, is quite different from the others. So operationally, the telescope will just quickly um, scan the sky doing the same pattern over and over and over again for five years. This cadence of surveying is really optimized for finding potentially hazardous asteroids. We have no other science objectives. We're not looking for supernovae or doing anything else. We're really focused on trying to operate this in such a way that we maximize discovery of asteroids and getting good orbits for them. Uh, so in any event, um, that's what we do for about five years. Uh, and if we're lucky, we'll be able to get even more years of operation out of it, hopefully getting us to that 90% mark. Uh, or pretty close to it um, with all the available resources. So I'll just leave you with this really fast. Uh, this is what we think, going back to that sort of top-down view, if you will, uh, what the survey will look like. It's basically the telescope will do the same survey pattern over and over and over again, uh, and hopefully we'll fill out relatively rapidly the population of near-Earth asteroids large enough to cause appreciable damage. In practice, we think we'll find about 15 times more objects than I'm showing here in this movie it just got a little complicated to render more. But you can get the idea, the solar system really is a very busy place. But the good news is when it comes to planetary defense, this is something we can actually, I believe, make meaningful progress on in the near future. Thank you. Thank you, Amy. Uh, this is an amazing talk. It sounds that based on what you said, uh, in an order of a decade, we'll be able to perhaps flatten the discovery that we saw earlier, instead of waiting for three decades to get to the 90%, perhaps sounds like that with the system that you are designing, uh, an order of a decade will suffice for that. Is this correct? 
We believe that's correct. Of course, we still have to finish building it. So that's another four years. Uh, it doesn't launch until September of 2027. So roughly 15 years, I would say. Okay, yeah. so cutting the timing, uh, the, yeah. the discovery time in half. Um, this is an amazing system. I'm looking forward to the launch of, of your system. Uh, I don't know if we have any question. We might have time for one question. If not, we'll uh, defer those questions to the end and um, we'll send it over to you, Amy. Uh, super interesting uh, presentation, and I think you're making a true impact to our, the safety of our planet. Well, I certainly hope to hope hope we're able to do that, and I really appreciate the opportunity to get to work on the project. Um, it is really a fantastic team. So, uh, thanks so much. Thank you, Amy. Good to see you again, and I'm looking forward to seeing you very soon. Thank you. Our next speaker is Professor John Marks. He's a professor of philosophy at the University of New Haven, and he will help us how to think about the topic of planetary defense. Uh, so Joel, please take it away and introduce yourself. Tell us what you do. Um, are you online currently and can share your screen? Can you see me? Can you hear Which me? You, we can hear you, and if you can share your screen, that will be fabulous. All right, let me do that now. Let's see here. This is always the hardest part, right? Figuring out how to share a screen. Then. Okay, yeah, I think that... Um... Does that look good? Yep, that's it, we have it. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, thank you, Nahum, for inviting me and uh, Ken for setting all this up. Uh, and uh, let's get right to it because I know we, we started a bit late. So I'm talking about the nature of the threat and you might say, well, uh, what is a philosopher doing talking about the nature of the threat? Uh, this is a job for scientists and engineers, and I must say I'm tremendously impressed by the job that has been done in, uh, well, I, I would count it from 1980, the last 43 years, uh, since uh, the Alvarez's uh, came up with a hypothesis of what caused the mass extinction 66 million years ago, including the extinction of the uh, non-avian dinosaurs. Uh, since that time, a number of people have taken very seriously the idea uh, that this something like this could happen again, uh, and that we are actually in a position to prevent it. Uh, and of course, the people who are at the front lines there are the scientists and engineers. But uh, I do believe that philosophers who take an interest in this subject have something to contribute, and I hope that will become apparent from my presentation today. Now, I'm particularly pleased that uh, uh, due attention is being given to comets uh, with today's conference. Uh, we've heard talk mostly about asteroids uh, when we talk about planetary defense, because most of the objects, uh, you know, that are that are likely to hit us. Uh, are asteroids. 
but comets are part of the mix as well. And this has been recognized since the very beginning. I mean, right after the 1980 paper published by uh, Luis and uh, Walter Alvarez, uh, there were workshops uh, of uh, scientists and engineers, uh, some of them called by NASA, uh, to look into this. And they all took comets uh, very seriously as, as in some ways uh, just as much of a threat as asteroids. So I'm going to focus on comets in my discussion, um, but also please understand that comets can serve as proxy for large, imp large potential impactors uh, because comets, that's to say the nuclei of comets do tend to be fairly large. So they can serve as proxy also for large asteroids. And now we even have the new category of interstellar objects, uh, which could be in that size range. Now, even in our lifetime, in our little teeny puny lifetime in the, in the age of the universe, uh, we have seen uh, what comets can do. Of course, what we're uh, what we're recognizing today is the anniversary of uh, Shoemaker-Levy-9's discovery, and its impact came a year later in 1994. Uh, you can see that pictured on the left. I was able to see that with my very own eyeballs uh, through a telescope as it was happening. Uh, certainly one of the most thrilling uh, experiences of my life. Uh, and uh, but, but much more recently, uh, just uh, nine years ago, uh, in showing in the picture of the right there, in the lower left, you see that tiny little fuzzy blue object. And in the upper right, uh, that, that large halo is, is actually the light coming from Mars. And comet siding spring uh, narrowly missed hitting Mars. Uh, in fact, at first, it was believed it was going to hit Mars. But then when they refined the calculations and then when they actually observed it, it narrowly missed. It came within uh, less than one uh, Earth lunar distance from Earth to Mars. Uh, extremely, extremely close. Um, and, uh, and that was uh, a lot smaller uh, than the, um, the object that, uh, that wiped out the dinosaurs. Uh, but nonetheless, it would have been one of those objects that could have uh, done regional damage if it had hit the Earth, uh, even as large as wiping out, a, a, let's say, a, a, the population of a continent. So this is not just uh, something that happened 66 million years ago. In our own lifetimes, comets have shown their mettle. Uh, and I would also like to point out that one week from today, is the 253rd anniversary of the closest approach to Earth of a large comet in recorded history. This is Comet Lexel, and this was a large one indeed, uh, larger than five kilometers. In other words, about half the size of the object that wiped out the dinosaurs. And that object came within less than six lunar distances of the Earth only 253 years ago. So again, we're not talking here about something 
that's just in the way distant past. This could happen at any time, as, as Nahum also pointed out. Um, nonetheless, comets, as I say, have, uh, have kind of taken, taken second place to asteroids in the current uh, planetary defense consciousness. In fact, uh, very often, uh, if you read the literature closely, uh, you'll see that the word asteroids often stands for asteroids and comets, just the way the word men used to stand for men and women. Uh, nowadays, we say men and women. Uh, but uh, in the old days, they would just say men. And uh, nowadays, it's still the case that people will often just say asteroids when what they clearly mean is asteroids and comets. And furthermore, the term near-Earth object excludes the most hazardous comets of them all, the so-called long-period comets, comets which orbit the sun in uh, periods of greater than 200 years. Now, this is very odd, isn't it? But I can prove to you that this is the case. Uh, because if we go uh, to the um, uh, CNEOS, CNEOS uh, website that Nahum was showing us before, and we go to the definition of the near-Earth object groups, we see that it says, in terms of orbital elements, NEOs are asteroids and comets with perihelion, that's to say distance from the sun, distance less than 1.3 AU, where one AU was the distance of the earth from the sun on average 93 million miles. Then it says near earth comets are further restricted to include only short period comets. Now, this is quite bizarre <laughs> because uh, a long period a comet uh, is, is just as likely to hit the Earth as a, as a uh, short period comet. And uh, furthermore, uh, it could do, uh, well, it could wipe us out, <laughs> in fact. Uh, I think um, the average diameter of a comet nuclei uh, are the ones that uh, we know about in recent history is something like three kilometers, uh, but they can be much, much bigger than that. Uh, so this is very odd. I once asked Paul Chodas, uh, uh, who was the director of Cineos, uh, uh, how come uh, they're, they're excluded? And he gave me an explanation, which I, I can't say I, I can completely uh, accept, uh, and maybe I'm not quite understanding it, but I think his explanation had to do with the fact that it wouldn't make much sense to be doing a survey of long period comets because, uh, uh, you know, they only come uh, one or two or a few a year. Uh, and meanwhile, there are trillions of them, uh, presumably in the Oort cloud, uh, which is their, uh, their source. Uh, maybe almost a light year away from the sun. 
And, and we're just not going to be able to do anything that makes sense as a survey of them. So we just don't, for that reason, count them as near-Earth objects. But if we're doing planetary defense, <laughs> we, we cannot ignore them, <laughs> you know, because they can certainly be near-Earth. They can collide with the Earth. Uh, for all we know, the object that uh, collided with the Earth 66 million years ago with a comet, although I think current thinking is that that was probably an asteroid, but it might have been a comet. So what are the reasons for deprioritizing comets in planetary defense? Well, first of all, uh, relatively few comets uh, compared to asteroids reach the inner solar system where the Earth is located. Uh, and uh, by the way, this, this slide uh, may be the most important slide I'm, I'm showing today. Uh, secondly, comets would typically be far more difficult to defend against uh, for various reasons. Uh, they, they, that's to say then the typical asteroids. I mean, again, asteroids can be very large too. But if we're talking about the typical one to be near Earth and the typical comet to be near Earth, uh, the, the comets tend to be large relative to the typical asteroid that is near uh, the Earth. They tend to be fast moving uh, because uh, especially the long period ones uh, coming from uh, the Oort cloud because of Kepler's laws, or I think it's a third law, uh, they're going much faster uh, uh, than uh, an asteroid that would be approaching uh, the Earth, uh, the typical asteroid. Uh, they would give us a very short warning time. Uh, typically, uh, the, the, uh, we don't uh, discover a comet until it lights up. And it doesn't light up until it gets fairly close to the sun because the sun is heating the volatiles on its surface. And that's when we can more easily see it. And typically that happens when the comet is at about the distance of Jupiter's orbit. And a comet that would happen to be approaching the Earth uh, that were at the distance of Jupiter's orbit could reach the Earth in as little as nine months. And there's no way um, that we could uh, defend ourselves against such a comet uh, if we were starting from scratch uh, to prepare uh, the spacecraft. Um, and I want to talk about that fact later. Uh, they also are difficult to uh, defend against because they can approach from every part of the celestial sphere, not just the ecliptic. The ecliptic is the plane of, of the orbits of most of the objects in the solar system, uh, the planets, so the, most of the asteroids. Uh, uh, but comets, especially again, the long period comets can come from any direction because the Oort cloud from which they come uh, is, uh, is, is thought to be spherical, uh, uh, surrounding the sun in a sphere. Uh, so, uh, so this is another extreme problem uh in terms of both the dynamics of trying to defend against them and also in terms of just observing them uh detecting them to begin with also they are subject to perturbations by outgassing and outdusting 
Also, they are liable to fragmentation because of their composition uh, of, of uh, volatiles and ice. Um, and of course, most notoriously, as we know, a comet Shoemaker-Levy 9 split into 21 comets. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> you know, some people in planetary defense are saying you might as well just throw up your hands. If a, if a comet is heading our way, we're doomed. My idea is that when the going gets rough, uh, uh, tough, uh, the tough get going. And I think this is an argument for becoming more concerned about comets in planetary defense, not an argument for being less concerned about them. Um, uh, and uh, we have also seen that, uh, uh, you know, again, talking about the reasons why asteroids are given more attention nowadays, is that even very small objects can do tremendous damage. And again, combine that with the idea that asteroids are much more numerous uh, gives you the sense of, yes, we do definitely, I would not disagree with this at all, we definitely need to give great attention to uh, uh, small asteroids in planetary defense. But my position is going to be that we must give comparable attention to large objects, especially uh, comets as well. Um, now, again, who am I to talk about this, right? I'm not a scientist, I'm not an engineer, I'm a philosopher. Well, uh, I'm not gonna take issue with the facts. I leave that up to the scientists and the engineers, and I accept all the facts that they have been telling us. In fact, I wouldn't be involved in planetary defense if I didn't know about the facts that those marvelous scientists and engineers have revealed to us. Uh, philosophers are more in the business of considering uh, inferences that are drawn from facts, and also the assumptions on which facts are made. By the way, I don't want to suggest that scientists and engineers don't care about those things also. They certainly do. Uh, but uh, philosophers specialize in, in these things in a way that is, is rather uh, focused. Uh, and again, I'm hoping that by the end of my presentation, you'll understand uh, the difference between how a philosopher approaches these problems and how a scientist and an engineer would typically do, simply because we have to be specialists. There's just so much time in the day. Uh, so um, another way to think about the uh, uh, philosopher's approach is that our stock in trade is not so much facts as logic and concepts. And in my presentation now, where I'm really going into the philosophical part, uh, I'm going to focus on concepts, mainly, okay? So, for example, do unicorns exist? <laughs> no, right? I mean, the concept of a unicorn, it's a horse with a, ho with a horn on its, with a single horn on its forehead, and it has magical powers? Oh, unicorns don't exist. Yes, unicorns do exist. That's to say, if we take the unicorn to mean the concept 
of an animal with a horn, with a single horn on its forehead. So in an odd kind of way, concepts determine reality. And I mean to take this very seriously. Here's something closer to our concern with planetary defense uh, having to do with astronomy. Is Pluto a planet? Well, I was brought up to believe that it was. <laughs> but oddly enough, in 2006, the International Astronomical Union, for quite reasonable <laughs> reasons, uh, decided to alter the definition or the concept of planet. And guess what? As a result, Pluto was no longer a planet. So this shows that the concept is mightier than the Death Star, because we did not need a Death Star to eliminate a planet from the solar system. We simply changed the concept of planet. And that's it. No more nine planets, eight planets. And now I come to planetary defense. Is there a high risk of collision with a Chicxulub size impactor? Chicxulub is the name of the region in the Yucatan uh, where the uh, object that wiped out the dinosaurs impacted 66 million years ago was about 10 kilometers in diameter. And so I'm asking, is there today a high risk of collision with an object like this? And again, as I mentioned before, I'm now slightly uh, switching the subject uh, from a focus on uh, comets, strictly speaking, to comets as proxy for large objects for which we have a short notice of potential impact. And long period comets do remain the poster child of this type of object. Well, the answer, the current consensus is no. Why? Well, here's the argument given. The chance of a Chicxulub size impact in the next hundred years, let's say, even without a robust planetary defense, is, is minuscule. 0.00001, if I've got the number of zeros right there, uh, a very, very, very tiny probability of uh, an object of that size uh, colliding with the Earth. Premise two, risk is probability. Here we have a concept, the concept of risk, and we're analyzing it or defining it as meaning probability. Therefore, the risk of a Chicxulub size impact is very low. But I would answer the question, yes, this is my contention. Here is my argument. Again, I start with the same fact. I'm not going to dispute the facts. The chance of a Chicxulub size impact in the next hundred years is tiny. But now I'm offering a different analysis of risk. Risk is probability times consequence. By consequence, I mean uh, the damage that would be done by such a collision. 
And by the way, this happens to be the standard definition of risk. And in fact, even most of the risk theorists and the even the people in planetary defense in the engineers and scientists recognize that this is the standard definition of risk. Premise three, the consequence of a Chicxulub impact size has a virtually infinite negative value because we're talking about extinction. We're talking about the extinction of our species or at least uh, the destruction of human civilization. Well, premise four, even a very low probability times a virtually infinite consequence is a virtually infinite value. Therefore, I would say the risk of a Chicxulub size impact is very high. That is my, that is my argument. Uh, now, a lot of people are going to object to this argument. They're going to say, uh, all right, you know, you win on semantics, all right? But look, let's face it, let's be real here. It's still such a minuscule probability of one of these objects hitting that, you know, we, we just don't need to give it that much concern. I can't tell you how many people, including in NASA, including in high positions in NASA, I've heard say, literally, I don't lose sleep over this one. Okay, uh, so I'm going to look at another concept now, probability. I want to I want to talk about the analysis of probability. One thing, probability is not always is not always predictive. This is because probability is, in a significant sense, subjective. Uh, in philosophy speak, we we use the word epistemic for that. But but uh, in other words. Probability has to do with what we have reason to believe. It's not about what is actually the case. And let me show you what I mean by that. Suppose that the next Chicxulub impactor heading towards collision with Earth will be discovered tomorrow, okay? Meaning we'd have about nine months to do something about it, meaning we're doomed, all right? Um, and uh, nevertheless, based on what we know today, today, literally today, you know, June 24th, the probability of our destruction by such an object is vanishingly small. Furthermore, the disconnect between our knowledge about reality is even more radical. Probability in the sense typically used in planetary defense has to do with the frequency of events. For example, saying once in 100 million years on average. It does not have to do with the occurrence of an event, even a present event. For example, on the very day that we are going to be wiped out and know it by a Chicxulub impactor on that very day, it will still be the case that it's highly unlikely. <laughs> 
because even so, it still only happens once in 100 million years. <laughs> All right. So the last words of the probabilist as that object is approaching about to collide and wipe us out will be, but this was so unlikely. In fact, we, we, we just heard somebody say uh, that it was so unlikely that we had these two objects uh, you know, on the same day, the, um, the Chelyabinsk and the other asteroid that were, was predicted to come close to it. It's so unlikely. Yeah, that, that's what we'll say. That's what we'll say. But I don't know that that's a very good planetary defense strategy. Another way of putting it is that when somebody says an event of this sort occurs only once every 100 million years, this does not mean like clockwork. Again, it means on average. And again, scientists and engineers know this very well. Um, mainly I'm addressing policy not the scientists and engineers who know all this very well. So for example, uh, when Chelyabinsk hit uh, Russia, the Russian emergency minister, Vladimir Puchkov, was quoted as saying, we thought that humanity would not have to face such an attack for another couple thousand years, but the opposite happened and Russia was hit with a large scale natural emergency. Now this is a ridiculous statement because he, it sounds like he's saying, well, you know, it happens like when an object of this size only hits the earth every like 3000 years and it was only a thousand years since the last time. So we had 2000 years left to go, but that, that's not how it works. That's not how statistics work. It's just on average once every thousand years, but you could have two in the same year. So for me, the most salient consideration is this, we simply have no idea when the next Chicxulub impact will arrive at our cosmic doorstep. It might not happen for another 100 million years. It might happen in nine months. So this brings me to one final concept I wanna talk about, planetary defense. The term was coined by Lindley Johnson, who is today an, an amazing person, by the way. I mean, he, he has made so much of this happen, along with so many other people, of course. But he is the person who actually coined the term planetary defense. And next year, we could celebrate the 30th anniversary of that, because it was in the same year that Shoemaker Levy 9 hit Jupiter, that he coined the term uh, in a white paper that he wrote when he was a uh, he was in the Air Force at the time, and he wrote this as a part of a very visionary study uh, commissioned by uh, the Air University at Maxwell Air Force Base in Alabama. Uh, this study was called Spacecast 220, when they wanted to consider, you know, what threats should we be thinking about for the year 220. Uh, which for them was, you know, 26 years in the future. But the military, of course, wants to be preparing to defend us way in advance. And, and it, it, they, it needs a lot of lead time. And Lindley was the one who thought to think about an extraterrestrial threat. And this is the abstract of his paper. Again, it, it's just, he was so amazingly visionary. This is a quotation now. 
uh, preparing for planetary defense. That's the title of, of his uh, white paper. Deve develops its theme by initially defining the threat, and that hence is the title of my talk today, and discussing the surveillance of potential impactors, which I think is a great term to use instead of saying asteroids and comets all the time. Let's just talk about potential impactors and their orbits. It then examines ways to counter the threat through various mitigation techniques. Finally, it discusses the benefits of a Department of Defense role in an international effort and provides some specific recommendations. Although not a traditional enemy, asteroids, and he left out the phrase and comets, are not, although he talks about them in the chapter for sure, asteroids and comets nonetheless are a threat that the DOD should evaluate and prepare to defend against. That's why planetary defense, well, it is, that's where the term defense comes from in planetary defense. So I will now sum up and say in national defense against a foreign adversary, we do not let our guard down for one second. Radar and other devices are scanning the horizon continuously for incoming missiles and with backups and redundancy in case of failures. Furthermore, we are prepared to respond massively to any detection at once. Now consider planetary defense. We have only incomplete and scattershot surveillance and mostly without backups. And we were, we got a real wake up call when Arecibo collapsed recently. Furthermore, should an incoming impactor be discovered with relatively short warning, we have at present zero response capability. It is time therefore, I submit to move beyond only research, limited surveys and demonstration missions and begin also full-scale implementation of a comprehensive planetary defense as it was originally envisioned, namely on the model of national defense. So what is the nature of the threat that planetary defense confronts? My answer, it's an existential threat. And I personally had the experience to encounter the last time most species on earth were wiped out by touching, I was touching with this very finger, <laughs> the KT boundary in Gubbio, Tuscany, Italy, which I visited after attending the Planetary Defense Conference in Frescati in 2015. Thank you very much. Thank you, Joel. This is an amazing talk. Uh, I learned a lot and uh, appreciate expanding our horizon beyond just thinking about asteroids and going into the comets. I think that one takeaway from your talk here is that uh, decision-making has to be based on the definition of risk. 
and seems that today it is based on the definition that includes only probability, whereas the right way to base it is on the multiplication of probability and consequences, especially when the consequences are extinction. So we have a question here uh, from the audience. Let's see what this person wants to say. Would you like to take the uh, mic? Just come here. So we have a question from the audience and I think there are some questions uh, online as well. So I'll just speak up in a moment. I believe David Levy is uh, raising his hand too. Hey, it's a retired Air Force Colonel Dave Wessick. Um, I learned it's not so much a question as a, a point here. I learned from Ed Conroe at uh, Space and Missile Systems Center that uh, they're not ordinal probability and consequence. So you really can't multiply them to, to do a risk calculation. I can create an example of that. If you estimate the impact of a, a uh, taking out Southern California at like a trillion dollars, but multiply that by the probability of one in a trillion that that might occur, the you'd have a risk of $1, which wouldn't be worth doing it. So that's a, a short, concise example of why they're not ordinal and you can't just make a formula like that. Um, it's more conceptual, like, like your point. And the other thing I'd like to point out is there's a probably a, a humorous reason not to use uh, potential impactors because of the ambiguity of uh, the same acronym, principal investigators, which would be kind of a strange thing if they, if they hit the planet. Thank you. Uh, as we can see, it is a controversial uh, way of thinking about those concepts. It is just the reality in which we live. Um, but is there a question online? Thank you very much. Dr. Levy. Dr. Levy, yeah, question from Dr. Levy. Go ahead. Thank you. This is more of a observation rather than a question. I have just spent the most surprising and delightful 15 minutes that I've had in a very, very long time. While you were talking, I was thinking about someone else who would have talked in the same way with the same sentences and the same ideas as yours. And that was Gene Shoemaker. I spent the last few years of his life very closely with him and with Carolyn. And I can tell you that if Gene were sitting right here, he'd have a huge smile on his face. Good work. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you, David, and thank you, Joel. Thank you. I mean, I am so honored. I, I met <laughs> you, Dr. Levy many, 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 many years ago when I was just a neophyte. And I so respect your work. I also heard... Uh, Eugene Shoemaker at Yale when he spoke. And I heard, and I met Carolyn at that time. And it was just pure hero worship on my part. And I can certainly be one of those people who say I stand on the shoulders of giants. And you are one of them and they are two others of them. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. And I think I could also share one little story during Shoemaker leaving nine or right after it. We were invited to the National Science Teachers Association. So I got up early one morning, got dressed and ready, took the elevator down to the lobby. And there were a lot of young teachers talking and laughing around. 
and then sitting at a on a on a bench in a corner, very quietly minding his own business, was Gene. What I decided to do is I just walked up to him, sat down next to him, and didn't say anything until he looked at me a few seconds later and said, "Gosh, I'm so glad you're here." <laughs> Someone I know, but we were very close and. And uh, he talked his risk versus consequence. All the points that you made are points he would have applauded. Wonderful, wonderful presentation. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, I agree that uh, those presentations are very interesting and inspiring to the mind. How to think about the risk. And the way you think about the risk determines what would you do to try to reduce the risk. So. The thinking process is really at the heart of those talks. So we have heard from Professor Amy Meinzer about what we can do to discover those objects and from Professor Joel Marx, how to think about the risk. And there are professors at universities, which means that they are inspiring the next generation of planetary defenders. I'm not sure if we have Arushi online. Arushi, are you online? Uh, I have a I have a, a, a question. Uh, my name is Adrian. Uh, I wanted to oh. thank uh, I wanted to thank Professor Marks for a very thought provoking uh, presentation, uh, and and I really appreciate his uh, his uh, sort of uh, focus on on comments and 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 there are also potential impact uh, scenarios. Uh, one thing that I wanted to see, and perhaps maybe one of the speakers today will be addressing, is the actual qualitative differences between. Uh, "Quote unquote asteroid impacts and 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 these potential comet impacts and I think the most obvious is the 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 sort of consequences of the Chelyabinsk uh, as you mentioned also in your chart the uh, Tunguska impact and then those of the uh, Chicxulub and uh, and say the Arizona and that in one case you have an obvious impact crater on the ground and with these other potential cometary uh, atmospheric uh, events." There are no craters, so you have two different kind of scenarios where one actually reaches the ground, and the other one is more of an air air type detonation. And so the qualitative differences between the two types of of impacts, I think, can can uh, be something that should be analyzed in, in terms of those differences and and what potential uh, uh, effects would be occurring from from such uh, uh, occurrences, uh, and uh, and also uh, perhaps that might also impact. Uh, planetary protection strategies would for would something on a, on a comet like the dart impact mission work i mean it's mostly a gaseous material a very very loose icy core that perhaps wouldn't react the same way from a Im impact uh, uh trajectory changed uh, uh strategy as it would for for say a more solid object an asteroid uh, as such as the uh the, the dark impact uh, mission uh, indicated. So I just wanted to kind of point that out and perhaps maybe one of the speakers will at some point address these, uh, these points and, and, and these differences. Um, so thank you very much again for that presentation. Thank you. Thank you for the question. Um, I will present later, stick around, uh, a study that we've done at the Aerospace Corporation to counteract a specific comet scenario that was put together by JPL for the 2019 Planetary Defense Conference, a very challenging scenario associated with the threat from a comet. And we are going to show a solution. So Joel, stick around and we'll save the word for you.
sure. You are a pioneer in this, Nahum. I know that. Thank you. Thank you. It's my passion. Um, so I heard that Arushi is not online. Arushi is a, a very young uh, person living in Canada uh, with her brother. They are inspired. They are probably the youngest scientists that I have encountered that did serious planetary defense research. They single-handedly have devised a way to track the asteroid Apophis in the sky. They attended the last planetary defense conference, and I think they attended at least one more before it. Uh, somehow she's not online, but I want to uh, mention that she is part, and her sibling uh, are part of the next generation of planetary defenders. I see a young person sitting there. Uh, I'm hoping that he is inspired to become involved and contribute to the safety of our planet. This is part of our outreach here to try to inspire the next generation of planetary defenders through different means, through the way we think about those, through the way we watch movies about those, which we will talk in the afternoon, and through attending those kind of talks by the next, the, the next generation of planetary defenders. So we're going to skip the talk by Arushi at this point and jump straight to a talk by Alisa. Alisa is a professor uh, of, uh, of law, uh, and I think that she's online. Are you online, Alisa? Yes, I'm right here. So Alisa is a professor of law. She's talking about what is allowed and what is not allowed when trying to figure out what can we do about planetary defense. Uh, she, as a professor, she is also inspiring the next generation of planetary defenders that might enable those type of missions in the future. So, Lisa, uh, take it away. Great, thank you so much. Let me see if it can go full screen. Okay, right. can you see this? Okay, now we can see full screen. And please Perfect. introduce yourself, Alisa. Great, thank you so much, Nahum, and thank you for having me. Hello, everybody. Uh, my name is Alisa Adaji. I'm a professor of space law, policy, and ethics, and I'm also the coordinator of a UN group, a UN-mandated ad hoc working group on the legal aspects of planetary defense. So I will tell you a little bit about the history of planetary defense management, and then I'll dive into why lawyers are involved when talking about planetary defense. And I will do my best to be as succinct as possible, as I know that I'm the last person remaining between you and lunch. So history, legal aspects, and I will tell you a little bit about where you can find more information about legal and policy aspects of planetary defense if you want to dig a little bit more into the topic at the end. So I actually always start my course on uh, planetary defense management by the comet, by Schumacher-Levy-9 uh, uh, in 1994. I think you'll hear more about it today. I will not focus on it, but I just want to say that it had a gigantic impact, not only for science, but obviously for policy and uh, and law. So after um, the impact, in 1999, there is the Unispace-3. So at the UN level, you do have large space conferences uh, called uh, UN COPIUS, United Nations Committee on the Peaceful Use of Outer Space, 
conferences, and one of them uh, was called United Unispace 3 in 1999, and this is where it was decided that an action team needed to work on the topic of planetary defense and work on the policies surrounding the topic of planetary defense. And this is where you see in 2001, Action Team 14 um, being dedicated to the work to working on future policies and suggestions as to how to manage planetary defense. In 2003, you have the Japanese Hayabusa mission that goes to an asteroid. In 2004, you have Apophis, and this is when you'll, you know, you'll hear about it a little bit more in 2029, and probably from other speakers, this large object coming close to, uh, to the Earth obviously will bring a lot of discussions about the question of planetary defense, even though Apophis is not uh, threatening to the Earth. And in 2013, as it was already shown to you at the very beginning of this presentation and of this uh, conference of day, you heard about Chelyabinsk, this uh, bullet who came into the sky, explodes, and then unfortunately hurts uh, about 500 people due to the glass exploding. Um, and in 2014, this is when you get another piece of policy. You have the creation of I-1, which is the International Asteroid Warning Network. So you have to imagine a network of organizations that look into the sky and coordinate among themselves to connect and share information about what they're detecting and what they're observing. And SEMPAGE, which is meant for Space Mission Planning Advisory Group. And you can just remember the two letters in the middle, M and P, it's mission planning. Here we're talking about international scientists coordinating with one another to connect and to design potential missions to uh, mitigate an asteroid threat. In 2015, you have the first planetary defense scenario at the planetary defense conference, and we try and we start to play around in a way in a serious fashion as we can uh, and and have a scenario to role play that's the word i was looking for to role play uh, a situation as if an asteroid were to come and see how scientists were to make decisions and little by little year by year uh, actually every two years you have now decision makers coming into the planetary defense conference that nahum is one of the co-chairs of and think and did discuss how to make decisions in case of an asteroid impact threat then in 2016 you have at the national level the united nation the united states working on their national neo preparedness strategy and action plan which uh, had its revisions and publication in 2018 and in 2017 nasa gets its own planetary defense coordination office in 2019 it's ESA, the european space agency which uh, opens its planetary defense office as well so you can see that it's a relatively short history. I am not going to go into the details of planetary defense and asteroids and comets in, in the sense that you are going to have a history uh, lecture apparently in the afternoon, so I do not want to focus on that, but I just wanted to give you a short summary of what was going on in terms of policies when it started, when people started to really talk about it at the international level and then what happened also at the national level in the United States and at uh, in Europe. So as a recap, you can keep in your mind 1999, Unispace 3, then the Action Team 14 of experts in 2001, I1 and SEMPAGE being greenlighted in 2014, and the US uh, plan in 2016 and 2018. By the way, SEMPAGE, you can also uh, remember it, they made it on purpose to say 
we are all on the same page so that we can coordinate a planetary defense mitigation mission if necessary. In terms of institution, I mentioned UN COPIUS, United Nations Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space, then its international group I1 and its mandate international group SEMPAGE, and at the national level we find NASA and ISA which does not mean that you do not have other uh, space agencies around the world working on planetary defense, but I, will, I just wanted to focus on these two and the fact that they have a dedicated office that got created within the past you know, seven years. And so what are the goals of planetary defense management? Well, it's to improve preparedness, because as you've heard, we could potentially have short warning time. So we want management, we want decision making, we want structures to be already in place and strategies to have been built so that you can make the decision as quickly as you can to be reactive to uh, what is happening. Improve the decision making itself, because many questions come into play when you think about an international threat or international risk. Uh, who makes the decision? How do we validate that decision? At which level? When and how and when does the general public gets involved in, in this decision? We also want to improve interaction with other areas of expertise. Uh, most famously, uh, in all planetary defense scenarios now, you do have the inclusion of FEMA um, because you want to know what the emergency response teams around the world who are in, in the United States do in times of um, of national and potentially international uh, threats and, and catastrophes. You do have already people working when you have a volcano emerging or when you have uh, floods. So you do have emergency, emergency systems already in place. How can you adapt them to a situation where you would have to potentially evacuate a population in case of an asteroid impact threat? And lastly, you want to think long term. You want to build management but you want to want to build structures and strategies that could be worked on and passed along hundreds of years ago from now because it's it's not something that could happen within the next 10 years or the next 100 years as you uh, as you've already heard today so how can you design systems that could stay in time and be useful to your great 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 grandson so at the international level you have the united nation then the United Nations has an office, United Nations Office of Outer Space Affairs, which has this committee. And then you have those two groups, the International Asteroid Warning Network and the Space Mission Planning Advisory Group. How do they connect? Well, when the International Asteroid Warning Network detects an object that has more than a 1% chance to impact the Earth, and that object is more than 50 meter wide, then same page would be activated. It does not mean that the scientists working within SEMPAGE do not work until we find that object. It just means that it, when it activates, it means that they're going to start a mission design specifically for that object. And at the national level, you see here the, the design within NASA, and you can see that planetary defense and a representative from SEMPAGE and also the planetary defense officer himself are located within the science mission directorate, which is quite interesting uh, when you think of, of policies, of technocratic structures, etc. And lastly, I wanted to give you a quick um, 
observation as to the economy of the NASA and ESA's planetary defense budget, you can see here that there is quite a jump between 2018 and 2020. And why is there this jump? Well, it's because of the DART mission. It's when you count in the DART mission within uh, the, the calculation of the planetary defense budget. And you can see this uh, raising up also at ESA because of the ERA mission that will be set next year. So now that I quickly went through the legal as the policy aspects of planetary defense, I'm going to focus on the legal aspects. Why do we have lawyers working with along scientists and engineers? Well, SEMPAGE itself, as I told you, was created in 2014 out of the subcommittee, the UN subcommittee, the scientific and technical subcommittee of UN COPUS. And its objective is to prepare an international mitigation mission in case of a confirmed asteroid impact threat to the Earth. And that group decided to create an international group of space lawyers who are experts in international space law, uh, which is a part of international law. And it's also related to, um, uh, to it's connected to maritime law in some cases, but really it's a subpart in some ways of international law. And so it's experts in space law from different agencies who do not represent these agencies, but who are nominated from these agencies to be able to talk and analyze what has been going on and what already exists in international law regarding the potential use of nuclear objects in space, regarding the questions that are relevant to the field of planetary defense. And so these 15 international space lawyers from NASA, ESA, DLR, which is the German space agency, the Mexican space agency, the Austrian space agency, the Italian one, the UK, uh, are all connected. And we have been working on a first report to which I will uh, present the conclusions of today. So the main four questions are liability for damage. So if an asteroid comes towards you and a country decides to try to push it away, who is liable if something goes wrong? Another one is the question of an obligation to inform your population that this asteroid has been detected and that you want to push it away or not. And an obligation to act if you have detected this asteroid and your country is going to be impacted does your president have the obligation to protect you and to launch a mitigation mission or not? Also, what kind of bo decision bodies are to turn to if somebody's go somebody goes rogue, if someone does something that breaks all laws? Where could we turn to to make decisions regarding these international uh, efforts? And finally, in terms of methods, we'll see in the next slides, there is a potentiality of using a nuclear device in space, but based on international law, that is not something that you can do. So just to focus on that for a second, and you, I'm sure you'll hear more about it uh, in the afternoon, and I'll leave the, the scientists and the engineers explain in more details uh, what kinetic impactors are and nuclear devices. But to make it short, kinetic impactors, you punch the asteroid away, you push it away. Nuclear device, you have an EO, a nuclear explosive device that would explode near or on, on or below the surface. The radiation vaporizes the surface material and ejects it at a high speed. And the pressure wave from that explosion pushes away the asteroid. And so the question is, could you use a nuclear device? And if so, in which, in which situations? 
Well, based on the OST, which means the Outer Space Treaty, the core of international space law from 1967 that has more than 111 signatories. So it's not something that you could put aside. Everybody follows the Outer Space Treaty. Well, in Article 4, it tells you that state parties to the treaty are undertake not to place in orbit around the Earth any object carrying nuclear weapons or any other kinds of weapons of mass destruction. Install such weapons on celestial bodies. That answers the question, could I put that nuclear bomb on the moon and then we would send it to the asteroid if it comes? Or station such weapons in outer space. Oh, can we put that bomb in orbit and this way when we need it, we can throw it to the asteroid? Well, why can't we do all of this? Well, the important term here, as you have seen, I'm sure, is the word weapon. And the definition of weapon in international law is complicated because it all comes down to intent. Obviously, when you send a nuclear device in space to push away an asteroid, you're not supposedly going to drop it to another country to win a war of some kind. But proving that you're not going to do so is incredibly complicated. Then scientists are going to tell us, well, we're not sending a weapon, we're sending a device, we're sending a tool to push away this asteroid. Well, the Limited Test Ban Treaty of 1963 tells you that it's not the question of calling it a weapon or not a weapon, there is a ban on all nuclear explosions. So based on international law, you would not be able to send a nuclear device in space, even though it would be potentially one of the best ways to push away an asteroid, depending on the circumstances. Mm. So in conclusion, in the first conclusions, and this is the picture of our report, I have a little slide with the link. Everything is public, you can find it online, you can download it, and I would love to get uh, your feedback on it and more questions if you have some. But the Outer Space Treaty and the Limited Tailspin Treaty prohibits placing a nuclear weapon in orbit, installing it, and the Limited Tailspin <clears throat> Treaty prohibits any sort of nuclear explosion. In terms of the other question that I was uh, pointing out earlier about the obligation to inform and to um, and to act, well, state that has has the right and obligation to try to protect its territory and its population, but there is no obligation under international law to assist other states. And the reason why that is is because in this situation of a state helping out another state but something would go wrong. So I will give you an example. Let's say Belgium is potentially um, threatened by an asteroid impact and is reaching out to ESA, to NASA, and saying, please help us push away the asteroid. If something went wrong in this mission, even if it's absolutely not intentional, starting the moment where something is launched and has an impact on the trajectory of the object, and let's say the object is not completely pushed away and falls on China, then the countries would have absolute liability on what happened. So let's say NASA were to help Belgium to push away this asteroid off, off Belgium um, territory and it falls on another country, that other country could sue the United States to reimburse every single damage that happened due to that uh, asteroid impact. So that's kind of difficult because if this happens, that means that there is absolutely any incentive to help. You do not want to help because you do not want to end up in a lawsuit, in a very, very costly lawsuit, even though you did so 
to the best of your abilities to try to help populations um, not to be impacted. And so that's why lawyers work on liability waivers. So at the beginning of this process, you would have a waiver saying me, country A, signed this waiver saying that I understand and acknowledge that if something goes wrong, I will not sue this other country. It's quite complicated because it would need to be an international liability waiver, but it is absolutely something that could be designed. Also, uh, the question that we get quite often is, what if a private company decides to go rogue and send its own thing? And, you, and actually, you can see it at the, it's uh, it towards, slowly for the spoiler, but it's one of the elements of Don't Look Up, a private company doing its whatever it wants. Well, all uh, space companies, all space activities, all non-governmental entities have to be all the countries have to be responsible for their own, um, uh, for their all non-governmental entities. So any companies registered in a country, the country is liable and the country is responsible for them to follow the law. So it's quite improbable that a, con uh, that a company would do whatever it wants because to be able to launch you need a license and the license will be provided by the country in question country that most most countries have signed the outer space treaty and most countries respect international law lastly okay so what can we do if an asteroid were to come towards the earth best situ best scenario best solution would be to use a nuclear device to push it away but international tells us that we cannot use a nuclear device what can we do well you can actually turn to the un security council and the un security council is composed of 15 members included five members who have a veto power and if nine out of the 15 including no veto power votes to supersede international law to pause in a way international law for that amount of time to say well in this specific situation we will send this nuclear device in space that is absolutely legal and absolutely possible. So you would need a vote of the Security Council with no veto and nine out of the 15 votes to decide on sending this nuclear device in space to push away this asteroid. So if you are interested to know more, because I had to go quite quickly over all of this, you can find our report online and I'm happy to answer any question that you may have uh, with you know via email or during this uh, during this Q&A session and also I invite you all to reach out and look at the uh, IAA planetary defense conference it passed it was in April but all of the material is online and you can find a lot of interesting information there you can most importantly find some social scientist sessions uh, if you're interested in disaster management and response in public education and communication and in my own session the decision to act political, legal, social, and economic aspects of planetary defense. There is plenty to research, and we're more than happy to, to see you at the next PDC. And on that note, I will leave the floor, and if you have any questions, please reach out to me. Thank you. Thank you, Alisa. Um, very, very important and informing talk from you. Uh, my takeaway from what you've said is that um, if an asteroid is discovered at too short of amount of time to do any deflection, and the only way to save a big city of, let's say, 10 million people would be to use a nuclear device, then resolving those legal challenges will be the enabler to save those 10 million people. So to me, the state of mind that exists today is different from the state of mind that will exist when a real threat is identified and that is going to determine what we will be doing.
I think the state of mind that should exist today is what we can prepare in advance so that when a real situation develops, we are a little bit more ready than we are today. So thank you, Alisa. I think those four questions uh, allude to a lot of work that still need to be done to develop those enablers for planetary defense. Amazing talk. Thank you for inspiring the next generation of your students, right, from your end. And I believe that there are at least two or three questions from the audience online. So let's hear from the online uh, participants uh, about any topic that was discussed. So who would like to talk first? This is John. Can you hear me? Very well. Yes. Um, noting that we might discover a dangerous object uh, six months before it's going to hit us. And it would take some time to build a diverter spacecraft and then several months to get out to the orbit of the um, threatening object. Wouldn't it make sense to build these things in advance, maybe even station them on the moon or in orbit, rather than starting after the hazardous object is discovered? And another possible thing that I'm wondering about is could we save time by firing a powerful space-based laser at the object from somewhere near the Earth, um, whether we could vaporize some ice on the surface and use the um, vaporized um, geysers to deflect the object. I wonder if anybody has looked into that possibility. Uh, yes, I'll uh, start from the second question, and the answer to that is yes. Uh, Professor Phil Lubin from Santa Barbara University has looked into the use of laser energy to um, either deflect or disrupt those objects. Uh, if you look up uh, Professor Phil Lubin from Santa Barbara University, you will find that him and his students have done and published quite a amount of work on this topic. Uh, my uh, recollection is that the technology is not ready yet. It might be ready in the next few decades, and that would be fine because the threat isn't going away anytime soon. But we might develop additional means of defending from those objects uh, using those advanced technologies. Um, regarding uh, the first question, uh, you're basically asking about what state of readiness we should be in to be able to address short, uh, short, uh, short warning scenarios. And uh, intuitively, we would like to say we would like to be ready, right? We would like to be ready to address those uh, objects. But we would like to do that without breaking the bank, right? We don't want to throw everything on a system or several systems that will be sitting on the launch pad doing nothing potentially for decades or even hundreds of years. And that's one of the big questions to be resolved, perhaps through the legal framework that Alisa is working on. What is a reasonable amount of preparedness we should develop to address objects that might come at a short warning of say less than 10 years or so? Because today we just don't have the means to address those type of warnings. If an object is discovered with a decade or more, we, have, we can establish the usual process of building those launchers and deflection systems and apply the usual process of testing. But less than 10 years, we are, not, we are not quite ready to do that. And the legal framework might be one of those enablers that will allow us to develop a little bit more readiness than we have today. 
you might want to add any something to that, Elisa or anybody else. Yes, I absolutely agree with everything you just said, Nahum. And I'll just add that one of the worries when we think about launching a nuclear device, it's not just what could this device do in space? Could it be sent elsewhere? Could it become and be used as a weapon? There is also all the side that is about the risk that there would be a problem at the launch site and that there would be an explosion at the launch site. And that raises a whole lot of questions regarding liability uh, in, in this case of malfunction uh, on, on the ground. So it's, uh, it's going to be a little bit tricky, but um, the, the legal working group is already working on the liability waivers and, and the potential tools that could be used in the situation so that, as you said, no matter what happens, there is a quick way to uh, to provide an answer. That's I think it's going to be a question of time, whether it's six months or, or a year, uh, the, the legal tools need to be put in place and need to be available so that they can be put in place quickly. Thank you. My personal opinion is that if an asteroid is discovered with the possibility of destroying a city of 10 million people, the biggest guns will be applied, regardless of anything else, in real time. Simply that. And so establishing the um, stable framework to deal with that without having to break you know, the rules and the laws, in an international coordinated way, I think is the critical way of thinking about it today, when we are still analytic and we are still, you know, relaxed in a room and don't need to run away from any place. But uh, we want to think about how to establish the way of thinking in a real situation. Uh, was there another comment or question here? Um, yeah, I, I have a quick question. Uh, uh, this is Adrian. Uh, what are the legal ramifications of say a partial deflection, say that uh, as was stated, uh, uh, an impact would, could be uh, uh, a trajectory could be uh, uh, certain for something like say New York City, but yet uh, there was there was not the possibility to completely deflect the, the the impactor. But say you could deflect it to the center of the Atlantic Ocean, perhaps, uh, and not totally avoid an impact. And but yet you might have repercussions. You might have tidal waves or something that might cause damage. So what kind of legal repercussions or or liabilities would be uh, uh, would be in place from, from an international law type of uh, uh, aspect. Well, as soon as there is some type of deflection, as soon as the object is in any way, shape or form changed, its trajectory is changed, even if it's partial deflection and there is a failure and it goes into the Atlantic, there would be uh, absolute liability. So let's say they decide to actually on purpose to send it to the Atlantic. Obviously, if it's on purpose, you would uh, you would imagine that they will have planned that there will be this tidal wave, that there will be impact on the on the west coast of France and Spain and Europe, etc. And so you would be able to have liability waivers set ahead of time. If it's not planned, as soon as there is any sort of change, the countries uh, impacted and uh, by this uh, change would be able to sue uh, the the country in question that launched that mission. Thank you, Alisa. Any other question online? So we have a question from Mark here in the room. Uh, Mark, would you like to ask your question? Yeah, sure. Hi. Uh, I just wanted to kind of. Um, I, I hope to get a chance to talk later, but. Uh, um, I wanted to go back to the laser uh, defense uh, question and how that would be handled within the UN group. Uh, 
um, in particular. And I, I believe that laser defense systems are much easier to put in operation than nuclear weapons in space, for example. You know, should be. Uh, and uh, and they have many applications that uh, you know, some people might think of defense applications because of all the science fiction movies that we see with lasers. But uh, but there are many other applications. Power beaming is one of them uh, over long distances. I used to work in this uh, for a lunar application. Uh, so so that was a you know great interest of mine. But I also consider uh, some of the discussion earlier about the long period comets. That might be, you know, virtually the only way to, uh, uh, if you see something coming, you you could uh, put some dwell on it with a, a laser over a long period of time and change its orbit slightly, change its tra trajectory slightly, uh, and it's much easier to do with a cometary body than with uh, orbital debris or uh, or a rocky uh, asteroid. Uh, to to have volatiles that escape and act propulsively on the uh, on, on the uh, object. So um, I, I just wanted comments about that and perhaps to encourage this UN group to consider that and whatever whatever is necessary to put fairly high power uh, in operation. Thank you, Mark. Uh, I think that uh, laser uh, technique is just another tool in the planetary defense toolbox that we would like to develop and have it at the ready to be able to address specific situations. We don't know what would be the nature of a specific threat. <clears throat> so we would like to have a variety of tools that could address a variety of, of, of uh, threats <coughs> developed over time in a reasonable manner. So <laughs> the focus is on finding them which is very reasonable. We are not aware of any major threat that is coming near us anytime soon. So it makes sense to invest most of our resources in trying to find those objects like Amy was describing earlier and other people described. So if you're lucky enough and nothing impacts us in the next you know, 20 or 30 years, we will shift to the next big phase, which is characterizing of these objects, how big they are, nailing down their orbits more precisely, and designing the type of tools that could enable deflection of a random object that would come away. So I think, thank you very much, Alisa. This was an amazing uh, presentation from you. And um, I'm looking forward to uh, more discussion on those enables by you and everybody else. I have a question for David Levy. I know that you are pretty much next, uh, but we are a little bit behind schedule here. Would it be okay with you to delay the start of the next session by maybe 10 or 15 minutes? Absolutely, absolutely. Thank you very much. So here, I think if I see the time correctly, it's five minutes before 1 p.m. Pacific time. Uh, I suggest to give about half an hour and resume at 1.25 Pacific, which will be, I'm not sure what your, are you East Coast, David? According to me, it's also 1.25. Oh, okay, so. so Arizona then, doesn't go to daylight time. Okay, uh, so we will resume in half an hour at 1.25 Pacific time with um, a little bit of an introduction to the big discovery, the Shoemaker-Levy discovery, and then followed by a talk by David Levy, 
very discoverer of that comment. So uh, thank you very much, everyone online and in the room. We'll resume in about half an hour. Thank you. So, uh, would you like to say where people can go right now? Yeah, yeah. Uh, there is uh, a cafe just across street there. That's the closest one. Uh, I forgot the name. It's just right at the corner. Corner, corner Burger. Yeah, yeah, you're right. The Corner Burger is pretty good, actually. Uh, so uh, that that's uh, very easy to to visit, and we have coffee and uh, muffin and uh, cookies in in the kitchen. Oh, muffins! I need to get over there. <laughs> and and stick around for the afternoon because uh, at the end of the day, I will present what we have done to actually eliminate a threat of a of a simple of a simulated comet coming into the earth that was presented at PDC 2019. We'll see how technology can be applied to saving the Earth from a comet. Thank you. And, and Mark, uh, you have a session uh, in the afternoon. Right. Yeah. Can you hear me? Yes. You know what? Uh, I didn't get to mention it in my talk, but I was thinking that uh, July 1st could be Comet Day because it's the anniversary of the closest approach of Comet Lexel, and it would come right after Asteroid Day on the 30th, and they could be a two-day, you know, celebration. Well, that's really a good idea, I think. Let's do that. <laughs> okay, so for next year, uh, can right. we have to talk about combining the comets? That's right. Well, events, yes. Right? We'll have David come here. I'm here in person. Absolutely, David. You're welcome for next year to join well, us. Thank in you. Thank <laughs> you. And I think I will accept. I'd like to be there in person. Thank right. you so much. It's exciting. It will be exciting to have you here. It's a lot more relaxing right here, but. So, Ken, would you like to? How would you like to proceed now? Do you want to do some intro or just give the floor to David Levy? Yeah. Okay. So David, uh, the floor is yours. Uh, we love to hear about the discovery and uh, the follow-up of Comet Schumacher-Levy. So well, take thank, it. thank you so, so much. And thank you for inviting me. Um, we tried very, very hard and very seriously to get the uh, slideshow to work, but I just couldn't get it. So you just get me for the next presentation. I think the reason that the slideshow isn't working is that the laptop I am using is the oldest laptop in the history of the world. When I bought this laptop, I looked at some of the old files on it, and one of them was called Plato's Democrat. And it turned out that that was the first draft 
of what is now known as Plato's Republic. And uh, it was fascinating to read, but they made him change it. And uh, so that's still fascinating to read, but uh, but that's why we couldn't, well, you just get me today. This is the, we're now at 29 years before the anniversary of the impact, but 30 years since the discovery of Comet Shoemaker Levy 9. Uh, and I'm going to tell you the story of the discovery of that comet and how it led to the impacts. Uh, this, <clears throat> the story actually begins in the year for me, 1960. I was 12 years old and I was just beginning to get interested in the night sky. And uh, I remember uh, riding my bicycle to our elementary school graduation. And a uh, little bit of full disclosure here. You are hearing this presentation from someone who has never ever taken a course in astronomy. I have, uh, I have no credentials and uh, I think this presentation may leave you all screaming into the night, you just might, but here goes. I was on my way to this elementary school graduation on my bicycle, turning a corner onto a large street and I could see I didn't quite turn the corner enough and I could see the sidewalk rapidly approaching me. And I remember thinking I'd better avoid that sidewalk. And then I remember not avoiding that sidewalk. The uh, bicycle stopped immediately as the tire hit the sidewalk. I, however, did not. And I went sailing ever so graciously over the bicycle, landing on the sidewalk and breaking my arm. While I was recovering, my cousin gave me a book called Our Sun and the Worlds Around It. I read it, I read it again, read it again, and again and again. And I decided that I want to be into astronomy. And I remember my dad asking me one day, he said, David, we have heard nothing from you except astronomy. It's very interesting, but it's also a little boring. So Next week, we'll talk about astronomy again. This week, we'll talk about something else. Don't make astronomy the most important thing in your life, okay? I looked at that and I said, okay. And then I said to myself, I will not make it the most important thing in my life. I will make it the only thing in my life. And that is what has happened for the last 65 odd years. And, uh, now, as I am 75 and very old and uh, skin and bones and everything else, I'm still carrying that original passion for the night sky. I know that everybody in this room knows more, knows a lot more than I do about astronomy, about impacts, but I doubt anybody carries as much passion for the night sky as I do. Um, and I want to welcome all of you here. And I don't know if you remembered that we do have one other guest at our Asteroid Potential Impact Symposium. And that is not a guest in a person, but in an actual asteroid. 
asteroid 2022 ES3 is at this very second between the moon and the earth. It is that close to us. So what we are talking about today is immediately today, this second, relevant to our planet. That doesn't happen all the time, but we have we are fortunate that I'm gonna get to see it because now is its closest approach. And by tonight it'll be already starting on its way out. Fortunately, if we were out there in space and we did it just something like that, we could turn its trajectory so that it would impact the Earth, causing a lot of damage, or like that, and move it away from the Earth so that it does no damage at all. But I think we're doing the right thing by just letting it be, letting nature take its course. We just enjoy the passage of this asteroid across the Earth. So, in 1960, my parents quickly gave up on trying to get me away from the night sky. And in, on September the 1st, a box arrived. Inside the box was a telescope. It was given to me as a bar mitzvah present from my uncle, who had bought the telescope for his own children, my cousins, and they never bothered to use it. So he presented it to me as a bar mitzvah present. I had that telescope until just a few years ago when I donated it to the Linda Hall Library of Science, where it is now on display, my first telescope. So on the 1st of September, the same day I got the telescope, I set it up and the first thing I looked at was the planet Jupiter. That was kind of an interesting choice for a first point, for a first object, a first light. But for me, it meant that I was able to look at the brightest thing in the sky that night, which was obviously Jupiter. What I knew was that I was looking at a something that was really awful. It was a fuzzy piece of light in the night sky with a hole in the middle of it. And I said, I know that's not what Jupiter looks like. Look at pictures of Jupiter. I know it doesn't look like that. This telescope was broken. I'm going to send it back to my uncle. But then I thought, maybe I need to do something. I learned a lot about telescopes in the next few seconds. First thing is that one must focus them. And by changing the distance between the eyepiece and the mirror, you could focus the telescope. And so I pushed the eyepiece down just a little bit, probably just by accident. And suddenly the object became a little bit smaller. And I pushed it some more on purpose now, and it became smaller. The hole in the middle disappeared. And gradually, I could see Jupiter with two lovely equatorial belts on it and four of the Galilean the four Galilean satellites. I mean, it was the, my first look at heaven and uh, I've never forgotten it. And even, so what I've done ever since between 1960 and today is that whenever I get a new telescope, what I try to do is do its first light on Jupiter. And my most recent one was just a few weeks ago 
And I'm not sure that I got it because Jupiter was only visible in the daylight sky, but now Jupiter's coming up in the morning and uh, it's a lot easier to see. Jupiter is a uh, wonderful object to start one's tour and one's lifetime in astronomy. But I was totally blown away by that look. And I believe my parents were as well on the night of September the 1st, 1960. There was a, another thing that was going on that I didn't notice, my parents didn't notice. Right next to Jupiter, even closer than the four Galilean moons, was a comet. And it, it's too bad that I didn't see that comet that night because it would have been my first comet discovery at the same time as my first look to a telescope. But that was not to be. Not I didn't see it, nor did anybody else on the planet Earth see that object. It was too small and too far away to be seen. It was, however, very close to the atmosphere of Jupiter, probably in relative terms, as close to Jupiter as the asteroid 2022 ES3 is from us right now. And I, I was, but I didn't know that. And uh, actually no one else really did either. And my observational career expanded after that. And uh, I wanted to be an astronomer, of course, and I did very well in high school math, but very badly at McGill University in calculus. In fact, I flunked math at college, I flunked physics in college, and I flunked out of McGill. McGill took pity on me and they let me try it again, and I flunked out a second time. No longer pity, I was out of college looking for a job when suddenly I was able to try for a third time, not at McGill, but at Acadia University and Novus in the Canadian province of Nova Scotia. While there, I majored in English literature as far away from astronomy as I could possibly get. And uh, with the exception of King Lear, a play by William Shakespeare, that talks about these late eclipses in the moon and sun pretend no good to us. There was no relation in my mind between English literature and the night sky. Got my bachelor's degree. I went to Queen's University in Ontario, Canada to get my master's degree. And just before I was going there, I was observing the Lyrid meteor shower, which is an annual meteor shower that takes place at the end of every April, April 21st. And I was watching the meteors and it wasn't, it was a clear night. Well, there were five or six meteors, very nice. And while I was watching, my brain went on to the subject of how many other amateurs, amateur astronomers like me in the past have seen the weird meteor show. And then I expanded my thinking a little bit and I thought, how many people in other fields, lawyers, doctors, are uh, people, people of English literature, poets, writers, 
have also seen the night sky. Excuse me. Have also seen the night sky and shooting stars like I was seeing on that night. When I went to Queens, I decided to do my master's thesis on the night sky in the poetry of Gerard Manley Hopkins. Now, those of you who have taken a course in English and whose professors have forced you to read Gerard Manley Hopkins probably remember him as the worst, most difficult to understand poet in all of English literature. And he was. His rhyme schemes were impossible, very difficult to understand. And uh, the only reason that it got interesting to me is that his life as a Jesuit was so interesting that I really was attracted to it. But he wrote these terrible, dreadful poems, except for one. When he was an undergraduate student, as I was, different university, he was at Balliol College at Oxford. He put pen to paper and he wrote, he wrote, I am like a slip of comet, scarce worth discovering. In some corner seen, bridging the slender difference of two stars, come out of space, or suddenly engendered by heavy elements, for no one knows. But when she sights the sun, she grows and sizes and spins her skirts out, while her central star shakes its cocooning mists. And so she comes to fields of light. Millions of traveling rays pierce her. She hangs upon the flame-cased sun and sucks the light as full as Gideon's fleece. But then her tether calls her. She falls off. And as she dwindles, sheds her smock of gold amidst the sistering planets. Till she gets to single Saturn and then goes last in solitary and then goes out into the cavernous dark. So I go out, my little sweet is done. I have drawn heat from this contagious sun. Do not ungentle death, now forth I order. This was a, this, this poem just blew me away. Here was a man who was not only an English poet, a fine English poet, one of the best, but he also was interested in astronomy. If he were to come back today, he would probably be a member of our astronomy club. He would be observing the night sky with me. And I thought there had to be others and there were others. And when I did my doctoral dissertation on, on uh, the night sky in the time of William Shakespeare uh, at the Hebrew University, I found a, a darn good one, William Shakespeare himself. I think if Shakespeare were to come back after 400 years, he would very, very much want to know more about astronomy. And I wouldn't—I think he wouldn't mind sitting outside in my observatory, observing with me. The power of the night sky, the power of what can happen in the night sky is incredible. You know, we watch the evening news. We hear about impeachments, indictments, 
accidents, people who said the wrong thing, people who said the right thing. And then we talk about the evening news. But, but I'm sure that everyone in this audience knows that in cosmic time, that doesn't matter. The events of the day do not matter. The events of our whole lifetime do not matter. For a human lifetime is a fraction of a nanosecond in cosmic time. The cosmos doesn't care. It's too small a time frame. And I realize that. But I'm still, I still watch the news, still watch television. But at the end of the day, as the sun goes down and the earth, shadow of the earth begins to rise in the east, and I gaze upon it, for a moment, I am brought into the magic of cosmic time. Thinking changes. I slow down, I relax. It's like an enormous pill tranquilizer pill that I can take with no side effects. So I enjoyed that. Seeing Shakespeare, who understood that feeling was so incredible and so wonderful. And I have a quotation here I wish to share with you. It's the first time I've read this since my wife Wendy's funeral last September. And uh, in addition to having no knowledge about anything, I'm also a good thief because I'm borrowing this from Macbeth and stealing the last line from King Charles's poem about the loss of his mom, Elizabeth II. Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. And it's at the end of Macbeth, when Macbeth also sees cosmic time, and he has just found out that his wife, Lady Macbeth, the only person that he really cared about, has died. And when he hears about her death, he just totally gives up. Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in its petty pace from day to day to the last so over wonderful 30 unforgettable years, the last syllable recorded time and then is heard no more. Life is so much more than a walking shadow of friends who struts and frets their hours across the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot. It is a tale told by a genius full of sound and light signifying nothing but signifying ever so, so much. And now cracks a, gent a noble heart. Good night, sweet Wendy, and may flights of angels sing thee to thy rest. If you want to know what I've been doing the last 30 years since the discovery of the Maker Levy 9, I married Wendy and we had 30 of the happiest years of my life together. But this lecture is about Shoemaker Levy 9. So at last, I get to it. I started observing with Tim and Carolyn Shoemaker. It was actually in 1988. I was in an asteroids conference in here in Tucson. And we were at the coffee break in the first, after the first couple of lectures, mid morning. And I'm going to get my coffee and I'm 
comfortable. And I look up and there's this tall man who is pointing at me with his finger like that. And when I realize whenever someone's pointing at me by doing this with his finger, the best thing to do is to find out what he wants. But I thought there's no way he can want me. He must want someone very important standing right behind me. Wonder who that is. So I turned around and there's no one standing behind me. And then he said, you, David, you're the one I want to meet. And that was Gene Shoemaker. And that's how I met Gene Shoemaker. The following year, I started observing with him at Palomar Observatory. Um, Palomar Observatory is where they were having a program, and this will stop in just a second. They were having a program of searching for asteroids and comets. I enjoyed the idea of searching for asteroids and comets since I had already started doing that. In 1965, I was trying to find Comet Akeaseki. I hadn't seen it yet, the brightest comet of the 20th century. And I'm thinking about it, and I'm thinking about the luck and the hard work of Kaoru Akea and Stomo Seki, who independently discovered that comet in September of 1965. And I was also thinking about what I wanted to do as a career. And it was during that morning that I decided I'm too stupid to be an astronomer, but I may not be too stupid to search for a comet. Far too stupid to find one, but not too stupid to start looking for one. I want to search for comets. Je vous cherche une comet. And that day was our French oral examinations. I got to school, went to the library, and on this big table there, our French instructor, um, Mr. Hutchison, sitting at one end, other people in the middle of the table, he at the other end. And he asked me the question, I knew the answer. What do you want to do as a career? I was so proud of myself. I sat up straight in the chair, looked straight at him. Those days I had to wear a tie. And uh, I said, Monsieur Hutchison, je veux découvrir une comète. Mr. Hutchison, I would like to discover a comet. At the time I thought maybe it not, won't be that hard to find one. It was. Anyway, the man looked at me, took off his glasses, shook his head and he said, in English, how the hell do you expect to find any, get, make any money doing something like that? We all had a good laugh, including Mr. Hutchison, including me. And finally, he said, David, I'm going to accept your answer, if only because in all my years of teaching, it is the most unusual answer I've ever received. But you better find one in 20 years, because if you don't, I'm going to come back and I'm going to lower your grade. I found my first comment on November of, 19, of 1984, 19 years later and uh, started observing with the shoemakers in 1989 after having found my fourth, I think, comet. We started finding comets about a year later together. And by March of 1993, we had found eight of them, plus a handful 
of non-periodic comets for a total of about 13. On March the 20, March the 23rd, 22nd, 22nd, sorry, of 1993, we had our first, we had our first session of the March 1993 observing one. And we started taking pictures. I was guiding, Carolyn was helping, she was preparing films. In the middle of the picture, Jean called up and said, stop observing. I thought, he's never said that before. Either he's decided to go to sleep or something's very wrong. So we stopped and went downstairs and sure enough, Jean said, someone has damaged our film. Someone, enabled it was, opened our film box and exposed the entire stack to light. And uh, we thought about it and we were, Jean had words, words were spoken. And finally I said, Jean, after the words were spoken, why don't we try a film from the very bottom of the stack? Maybe those are still okay. And Jean said, just a minute. We took a film from the bottom, a couple of films, developed them without anything on them, and they came out okay. And he said, you did it. We're going to use films from the bottom until later tonight, until we have a fresh batch. And we used those. The next night was March 23rd, the 24th Universal Time. And I'm still arguing with the Minor Planet Center as to which date the discovery was. Um, they say the 24th. I don't. But anyway, anyway, we're observing the next night and we're taking pictures and the film is good and the sky is lousy and we stop observing. We go outside. We're looking around in the sky. It's looking pretty dismal. And uh, except for one small section of clearing in the southwest. And I said, look, there's a little hole in the clouds. That's not too bad. Maybe we can shoot through that. And Gene laughed and said, there's our David, always the optimist. And he, and he gave me an economic answer. He's pretty smart. He said, David, every time we slap a film into that telescope, it costs four, no, yeah, it costs four dollars. We simply cannot afford to eat waste film on a night like tonight. And uh, I said, well, that's not too bad, $4. And she said, that's for American dollars, not that Canadian monopoly money you guys play with. And uh, after another laugh, Carolyn said, Gene, David has a point. That little hole in the clouds is getting wider, and maybe we could try it. She looked. We looked at each other and we went in and we decided to start. The very next pictures I have, which are right over there right now, are the discovery images of what is now known as Comet Shoemaker number nine. The very next one. We were able to get the first set and then we had to wait over an hour for clearing before we could do the rest of the set. The following day on the 25th, Carolyn is scanning, I am reading, and Jean is reading. 
And suddenly Carolyn stops. She looks at me, looks at Jim and says, I don't know what I have, but it looks like a squashed comet. Simple as that, pretty quiet. And the way she said that with a smile on her face, I thought she was joking because one of the things that made observing so much fun with them is the humor that went on. So I have, I thought she was kidding. Jean didn't, Jean got up to take a look. Carolyn went towards me. I looked at Carolyn and I said, you are joking, aren't you? She shook her head. Then I looked at Jean. Jean lifted his head up from the uh, steering microscope and the look on his face was one I have never seen before of absolute shock. I think I said, I better get a look at this. And I saw the two strangest things I have ever seen in my life. They were like, they literally were like squashed comets. The star fields, I'm describing this, the star fields, there were um, very strange um, lines on each of the films, fuzzy lines, that's when I noticed, and the lines had little perpendicular lines going up toward the top and about maybe 12 or 13 of them. And then the lines extended on either side, getting thinner and narrower. Couldn't believe it. I absolutely, I had to look away from the stereo microscope and then look back at it, partly out of emotion and partly because I just couldn't believe I was seeing this. Finally, I gave the uh, stereo microscope back to Carolyn and Jean, and we studied it for a while, decided the kind of note we should send to Brian Marsden, may he now rest in peace. He was at the time the director of the Minor Planet Center. We composed a note about the comet and about, about the shape and about the size, and we sent it to him. We did need to get it confirmed because the policy is, and it is now, they don't publish something without confirmation. And they actually follow that policy a lot closer now than they did in my day. I remember there was one comment that I found that was published without a confirmation. And it turned out to be true, but boy, that was taking a chance. Anyway, I was, uh, I need, we needed to get confirmation. And the one person I knew who was observing that night was a dear friend of mine, Jim Scotty. We are still close friends. He was observing from Kip Peak from the Space Watch camera. And he said, excuse me. And he said, that he's very busy, has a lot planned, and this guy's supposed to get bad again. But if you really want me to do this, if it's that important, I will do it. And I said, Jim, you got to do it. And uh, he said, well, call me back in a few hours and see what we can do. About three hours later, I called him back. And he answered the phone with a whoop. 
And I said, Kim, are you okay? And he said, no. And he said, David, the sound you just heard is me attempting to lift my jaw off the floor. And I said, do we have a comment? And there was some language after that he had it and he said with, boy, do you guys ever have a comment? <laughs> it's the most, the strangest, it's the strangest thing I've ever seen in all the years I've observed him. And I remember in the days after that, after that observing run ended and I went home, I was working at the time, part-time at the Lunar and Planetary Lab. And I went inside and I went to Jim's office which is right by the front door. And there was this big crowd of people in his office, all looking at the image of Comet Shoemaker Levy 9, which was at the time just Comet Shoemaker Levy. And uh, there, was very, there were very few comments. People were just looking at it. Every now and then there'd be a detail that someone would mention. And that took care of things for a while. We followed it for a number of years. There was an article in the New York Times on page 67 of section F or something like that. And the article was pretty good. They got everything right, excepting that they had me married to Carolyn Shoemaker, which was a lot of fun for us for a while. And then, and then that was the end of it. The story was over. You remember what I said about news versus cosmic time earlier and we just went on until may 22nd 1992 we were observing again we had another observing run up the 18 inch and if you want to see the 18 inch you still can it's not in the observatory anymore it's at the palomar museum as the first telescope ever built on that observatory and this was 30 years ago, May 22nd. We're at the telescope and uh, Carolyn is scanning a scan that would end in the discovery of yet another comet that day. And Jean was reading and I was checking my email. And on the email, there was a circular. And right away I said, there's a circular about our comet and they'd given it a number called Shoemaker Levy 9. And that was the old way of naming comets. And they changed it, I think, two years later to this system they have now. In fact, now they would, instead of calling it SL9, they call it Comet D slash 1993 F2 uh, Shoemaker Levy. So it takes 18 times longer to say the name of it, but it's more accurate. No, it's not, but that's another topic. Anyway, for about the first, for about the first five years after the new system came, I wrote article after article fighting it and then gave up. But anyway, name of the comment. And uh, so Carolyn stopped what she was doing. Gene stopped what he was doing. And uh, I looked at the circular, there were two of them. And I remember asking Brian one day over dinner, if you were to be the first to find out that an object was going to hit the earth, and you were pretty certain of that, and you were the only one who was certain of that, 
How would you announce it? Said it would be very simple. I would publish the orbit, and in the orbit, I would have a delta factor. And the delta is the symbol for distance to the Earth. And with, if you look down the scale, the table, you see delta decreasing until the value of delta was less than the radius of the Earth. And then you'd know there'd be a collision. That's how I do it. And that's kind of what he was doing. He had the orbit of the comet now around Jupiter, which, which was a surprise in itself. And the, uh, the delta J was getting less and less. And I'm saying, you know, it's getting on. It's going to make a really close approach there. And Gene looked at it and said, he said, a lot closer and close. Looks like it's going to collide. Well, there was a second circular at the same time. And it began with, as most of you now know, there's going to be a collision of at least some of the particles of the comet will be colliding with Jupiter in July of 1994. And uh, that circular sent an estimate of about 60% that some of the fragments of this disrupted comet would be colliding with Jupiter in 1994. It turned out that about five days later, a group from JPL, right where you guys are, and where I kind of wish I were right now, may had another estimate that came out with a 95% probability that all of the fragments would collide with Jupiter. And of course, the Minor Planet Center agreed with that within a few hours, and that's what happened. And with that news, there was another article in the New York Times. That one was not on page 65 of section F, but on page one. A comet is, is discovered, no big deal. Comet is discovered near Jupiter, a slight deal. Comet is going to collide with Jupiter, a big, big deal. And uh, that made it on page one. And the world kind of stopped for a second to consider a cosmic story. There were meetings both here in Tucson, the big crash bash in the summer of 1993, one in Baltimore in 1994, and a meeting after meeting, too many to list. And as we got closer to July, on one cloudy night, I was sitting in the 18-inch dome room waiting for clouds to clear. And I said, where are you going to be, Gene? Uh, no, Gene asked me, where are you going to be for the, for the impacts? And I thought about it. And I said, I think I'm going to be somewhere in California where the weather is supposed to be pretty clear during the summertime. And I'll try to get to see them from here. Where are you going to be? I'm going to be in Washington. Where are you going to be? I said, well, as I just said, I'm going to be in California where I can get a good look. Where are you going to be? And she stands before you say, I'm going to be in Washington. Where are you going to be? And I thought about this. And I looked back at Gene. I said, I think I better be in Washington with the two of you. And she said, that's the answer I was looking for. This is the most important moment of our professional careers. We better be together. 
And uh, he said, because there may not be anything to see. And if there's nothing to see, we're going to get yelled at. And we better find a rock to hide under so that we won't, we won't be stoned by the rocks people throw at us. On the 15th of July of 1994, I said the dumbest, stupidest thing in my entire life. I'd gotten about two hours of sleep that night. And I was up that morning in New York to be on the Today Show before taking the flight to Washington. And the, I got on, I was, you know, when I get up after two hours sleep, I'm bumping into mirrors and things. My brain isn't working well, never is working well, but even worse. And I sit down and they get me ready. And I'm, I'm kind of looking half, halfway decent, but only halfway. And the, host, the hostess at the time asked me, Dave, could you describe what a comet is in one sentence. What a question when I've had only two hours sleep. I had no idea. I looked at the camera and I said, comets are like cats. They both have tails and they both do precisely what they want. No better comet than Shoemaker Levy to answer that. We have no idea what's going to happen. And in fact, there was an article in, in his science, I think it was, the issue that came out just before the impacts. Beware, the great fizzle is coming. And his prediction, the author's prediction was that the impacts are gonna be so deeper than the planet that we're gonna see absolutely nothing. In Yiddish they say bupkis, nothing at all. And, uh, and so I wrote to the fellow and I said, I hope you're wrong, but maybe you'll be right. And he wrote back and he said, David, I'm a little scared because what I forgot is, what if the impacts occur at the top of the atmosphere? What if the impacts, what if the fragments are smaller than we thought and they break up quicker? We could see a lot of things, which is precisely what happened. We're having our rehearsal. We're in the auditorium and he's teaching us how to sit. Sitting on the tails of our jackets so we look decent and looking like human beings and getting ready for, for questions. And uh, we're all kind of doing that when uh, someone from upstairs walks in very silently and he walks in with a single sheet of paper and hands it quietly to Jean. And Jean stops and said, you mean we saw plumes? Everything stopped. Everybody stopped. We rushed to the nearest computer where we could see them for ourselves. And that ended the rehearsal. When we had the session, this first session was supposed to be kind of an introduction to the discoverers and just an idea of what we might expect. We now knew what we would expect because the first impact had a tremendous effect on Jupiter. Big, huge, dark spot, very large. And as the week went on, 
some of the smaller ones were very small. The larger ones were larger. And on Monday, the uh, 18th of July, fragment G collided with Jupiter, leaving a black spot larger than the Earth. Easy to see with binoculars, and that's that's pretty hard to say with Jupiter, but with the smallest department star telescope, and it was something special. And we were all looking at, at Jupiter. A couple of days later was the 20th of July, 1994, the Belgian Fall of the Space Program. You remember that would have been the 25th anniversary of the Apollo 11 moonwalk. And there was an event at the White House to which we were invited. And uh, Neil Armstrong gave a wonderful speech, may he rest in peace. And he said, even Gene Shoemaker came, brought one of his comets with him to celebrate the occasion with spectacular Jovian fireworks which is pretty precisely what he did. And at the end of this meeting, we were about to leave when someone came in and said, the vice president wishes to talk with you. Could you wait a few minutes? Which we did. And then the vice president at the time was Al Gore. And uh, we didn't talk politics, we talked about comments. He wanted to talk about everything we could tell him about Shoemaker number nine, and it was it was as much as we could. And I kept on thinking to myself, he may be vice president of the United States, but I'm going to get to see the impacts before you do. And then Al Gore stopped and he said, "You know, I live at the U.S. Naval Observatory. That's where my home is. That is where the vice presidential mansion is." And I thought to myself, please don't say it. And he said, last night I said to myself, please don't tell me. Last night I knocked at the door, the sonar let me in, and I got to see the impact spots. I said, he saw the spots before me. I said to myself, and uh, it was kind of fun. And I thought I'd share that story with you. At the end of the uh, at the end of the week, we had a final session, a final news conference, and that was that was from those news conferences. But one of the most fun parts we had, because we'd sit there, and one of the news people would get a microphone and say, "Okay, Gene, tell us everything that's going on," and Gene would do that. They loved Gene. They loved Gene from when the Apollo, Apollo 11 years were going on, and he was talking and explaining in terms that everyone could understand. And he did the same thing with SL9. Anyway, we get to the point where we're off now. And uh, <clears throat> uh, at the end of the uh, of the week, Jean and Carolyn left. They went back home. They were so tired, they could hardly say goodbye. They wanted just to get home and rest. I felt the same way. And as I left, 
I look back upon the last week. I made two important discoveries in my life. One of those discoveries, the best, the best, the best decision I ever made in my life, two decisions. The best one was meeting and marrying Wendy. That gave me the best 30 years of my life until she died last September from breast cancer. The second best decision of my life was made in, in 1965 when I decided I wanted to search for comments just before the French oral examination. That led to a career that I'm still doing with, has still given me an enormous amount of joy. And I can't begin to share with you, I tried to in the last hour, the joy that I'm feeling. And so I will end with a very brief poetical quote. It is Wendy's favorite. And at first she would mouth it with me as I was saying it. And then later I would just invite her to come to the lectern and say it with me. I cannot do that anymore, but I will close with that quotation. It comes from Ralph Hodgson's very famous poem, The Song of Honor. I stood and stared. The sky was lit. The sky was stars all over it. I stood. I knew not why. Without a wish, without a will, I stood upon that silent hill and stared into the sky until my eyes were blind with stars and still. I stared into the sky. Thank you all for your attention. Thank you very much. Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you, David. Uh, I think that uh, um, the discovery of Schubert Yalevin 9 was one of the best wake-up calls for humanity to recognize the threat from asteroids. Can you talk in a couple of minutes about how the discovery inspired additional work, perhaps additional generations of astronomers and discoverers that were inspired by, <clears throat> by this discovery? Yeah, I, this, is, this talk was mostly about the beginning of it because we're celebrating 30 years from the discovery. Next year, we celebrate 30 years from the impact. And, uh, and so that's a whole other question. But um, humanity likes to see something real. So a talk given by a scientist about what do we do if there's a cosmic impact is very difficult to relate to, that the Earth has suffered that before. And if you pound your hand on a rock, or as Mark did earlier, go out to Italy and touch some of the uranium, you can get a feeling from the earth that this, this happened. It's not something that's hypothetical. It happened once and it could happen tomorrow. It could happen within the next five minutes. If that object out there were just a itsy bitsy bit closer than it is now. Um, this is an exercise in what might happen.
it's an example of risk versus consequence. The idea of a an object the size of the dinosaur comet, about 10 kilometers in diameter, 60, 66 million years ago or whatever, or an object the size of Shoemaker Luna 9 before it broke up in an earlier encounter with Jupiter is pretty hypothetical. It ain't going to happen for a long time, probably. Probably. Emphasis on probably. But it's healthy to sit back and relax and think about it. What happens? What happens if that were to happen? When we board an airplane, the chances that that airplane is going to crash land and throw us all out into the desert before it hits the runway, it's about one in 20,000 over the course of a human lifetime. It's not very much, it's not much to worry about. Although that happened just yesterday with those poor five people who, uh, who perished on their way down to see the Titanic. I never believed that over a hundred years later, the Titanic would take five more lives, but it did yesterday. Five more lives to add to the 1,500 that it, it just took. Kind of so tragic. But anyway, that's an example. It's not going to happen to me, and it probably isn't going to happen to any of you, or to the next generation, or the one after that. But it might. And that's the risk. What is the consequence? If an object a kilometer in diameter could collide with Earth, it would be large enough to have effects that would spread over the entire world. There would be, if it landed in the ocean, there would be kilometer high tidal waves that would sweep across half a continent. It would cause earthquakes over the entire planet. Um, it would not cause the end of our species, but it would cause, it would probably cause mass extinctions of some species, but we are probably, hopefully, smart enough that we would not, so not, we would not be made extinct by a one kilometer. A 10 kilometer diameter object is a different story. And 100 million years is about good. It's about right for the average impact of a 10 kilometer large object or tomorrow. A 10 kilometer impactor, we simply have got to deflect that or we're gone as a species, just as the dinosaurs were. The dinosaurs and not just them, but approximately 90%, 90 to 95% of all the species of life on Earth were extinguished 65 million years ago by the collision of what we believe is an approximately 10 kilometer wide long period comet, probably one in the orbit of a sun grazer. That's what Gene took as a guess. And he also suggested that it was on its way back from the sun 
So it would have been seen as a very bright object as it narrowed reached the sun by a very close perihelion distance and started on its way back. And then on its way back, it collided with the Earth. We don't know that, but that was just Gene's guess. And Gene, I'd say, was a pretty good scientist, and his guesses are usually the correct ones. And I say that because he guessed right about Shoemaker leaving on. Yeah, this is quite amazing. I think that with 100 million years between extinction events, it, it's good to feel that we have another 34 million, dollar, million years to wait, right? So. <laughs> yeah, and I wish you were still around to make guesses like that, better than my guesses. So um, I've had two minutes to answer that. <laughs> yeah, I think it's good to know that we have those kind of wake-up events. Uh, Shubikar Levy 9 was one, Chelyabinsk was another. And just the general research that is being done, the, the rate of discovery that is ongoing, tells us the, where the momentum is, right? The momentum is that we are going to find a lot more of these, hopefully, before they find us, and we will have to do something about it. I saw a few comments that came online uh, congratulating you, David, for the amazing talk. It's a, a huge honor to have you speaking to us 30 years after the discovery, and we look forward to hearing you next year on the anniversary of the impact itself, right? Which was an amazing event. Well, thank you. And I hope I'm still alive by this time next year so I can join you and enjoy it in person. We will have our blessings for a very long life of storytelling just like that one. Thank you. And with that, I think we are going to move to our next speaker. Thank you very much, David. Uh, it's going to be Bill Ayler. Bill Ayler um, um, is my mentor. Uh, <laughs> Since I joined the Aerospace Corporation, uh, he is the founder of the planetary defense activity at Aerospace for about 25 years now. Um, so as soon as I teamed up with him, I learned everything that I know about asteroids from Bill. <laughs> so Bill will tell you about the activities from the inception of the conferences and the studies and until the very last conference and where we are headed in the next few years. So, Bill, take it away. All right, thanks. Use the mic. Yeah. Okay, well, it's a pleasure to be here. I've spoken at a few of these conferences in the past, and I really uh, thank the AIAA for putting these things on. It's a very educational experience. So, what I'm going to talk to you about is uh, the. Figure out. Good to go? Yes, okay. <clears throat> is the 2023 Planetary Defense Conference, and. Um, give you an overview of what we talked about and then actually talk about uh, something that uh, I think you'll feel a little bit excited about. Let's see if I can figure out how to work this thing. Okay. Which way do we go here? Yeah. Maybe just place the button. You can just hit it for me if you want. Let's change. Yeah, why don't you just change it for me? It's fine. Okay. Okay. So I just want to give you a little bit of a history on these conferences. We've been. Oh, it does. Okay. Very good. 
Uh, we've been at this for a number of years. Uh, 2004 was the first one. And uh, it's interesting, when I uh, was at aerospace, I didn't know a thing about asteroids or comets or anything like that. But I, could, I was approached by uh, an Air Force uh, general who basically said, you know, if there was a if there was a comet headed for our asteroid headed for Earth, what would we do about it? And I didn't know anything. And uh, they set up a little committee to try to figure out some response to that question at that time. I was involved in that. It really was clear to me that there really wasn't much, uh, really co any coordinated effort to try to figure out what a response would be at that time. And so uh, I figured I figured a good way to do something about that, or learn, or to sort of keep it. And keep us informed would be to have our conference. And so we started these series of conferences and you can see where they've been. Uh, we've tried to carry these things all over the world because uh, my, and I'm sure you would agree, most, you know, any kind of uh, threat like that is really a global concern. You don't know where it's gonna hit, but as uh, was described, if you actually have a sizable object hit our planet, it affects everybody. And so um, we want to make sure that we, everyone has information about how to do that. Uh, or what to do about it. And so you can see where we had them. Our last one was in Vienna, Austria. That was a very interesting conference. It was at the uh, UN facility there. We were invited to be at the uh, uh, Vienna International Center and the, all the uh, logistics and such were handled basically by the UN. It was quite nice. Uh, okay, and so this gives you a bit about it. It was a, all of our conferences, except for maybe the first, were, have been five-day conferences. And uh, on this particular one, we had a nice discussion about the DART mission, which I'm sure you've heard of. Um, the sponsoring organization is the International Academy of Astronautics. Uh, that was chosen because of the international flavor of that particular organization. Um, the chairs are, as you see there, and uh, we have a good mix. We have several from uh, you know, out of this country and uh, you know, one from NASA and so forth, but that's uh, we have a good, really good set of chairs. There's an awful lot of work done to create this particular conference. One of the hardest thing was that the UN does not allow any, they don't charge anything for using their facility, believe it or not. But if you're trying to run a conference where you've got, um, you know, you have to have special coffee breaks and things like that, you have to figure out how are you going to actually pay for that. And so, uh, but they, they wouldn't let us use, you know, something like a registration fee or anything like that as a as a, a something in our public publications so that people would pay things so finally we managed to figure it out and it was a pretty inexpensive conference but it was uh we got what we needed we had uh, the organizing committee we have for years had a very large organizing committee it's an international group uh rep representing people from basically all spacefaring nations and a lot of other people there's about 60 specialists there and uh, we had uh, partners with a local organizing committee in Vienna, which was uh, very helpful. <clears throat> so the uh, host on that uh, that conference was uh, United Nations Office of Outer Space Affairs, as I said, and which we thought, again, we're getting to at the international uh, level, which is really where we want to be with this particular discussion. And uh, <clears throat> at the Vienna International Center, and we had uh, 275 people who were actually in the room. That was about the limit of how many we could actually handle in the room. The room holds about that. And uh, we had 200 people who were on remotely. And then we had 1,000. That meant that they uh, were could ask questions and actually present their briefings online. And they also had about 1,000 observers online. And um, the sponsors and supporters um, for that were, as you can see here, one of the things that we use to actually uh, make these conferences work is to have sponsors kick in some funds to us. 
And we tried to really built this over the years. The first conference, AIAA was the sponsor, and, and aerospace was the primary lead for that particular conference. And aerospace landed the first landed the first two, the 2004 and 2007. Uh, aerospace ran, and then it became a uh, international conference. Uh, and then, then you can see we've had really good support over the years. We typically have anywhere up to say 20, 25 sponsors, and uh, that's been very helpful. Uh, this is a picture, picture of the uh, people in the uh, rotunda at the uh, UN there, and you can see in the center in that little, um, that little blue tent in there is actually uh, a, meteor, a large meteorite that was discovered uh, that was brought over from the uh, Austrian Academy of Science. That was very nice. And uh, uh, there are a few of us in there you can see. I think Nahum's in there somewhere, and I am buried too. So this is not the highest resolution picture available, I have to say. <laughs> okay, and this shows you where our remote participants were. Um, and as you, you can see, we've had a really nice coverage across the world on this, which is exactly what we want. And we had uh, participation. Uh, you know, the web allows us to do some really nice things, so we can do just like you're doing here. We had people giving briefings from all over the place. And uh, the sessions are what you see. We, what we try to cover is basically uh, soup the nuts, as they say. We want to cover everything that we know about these objects. Um, you know, what are we doing to discovery? The key international and policy developments is something that where we track what's going on in the world, things like the DART mission and some of the, the actual formal missions that have been approved and uh, what they're uh, what they've done. And then we can see here, you know, discovery, characterization, deflection. So basically, it's really trying to cover everything that one would be interested in knowing about on planetary defense. And I think you'll see, like, item nine down there is a decision to act. And there's some real serious issues with that, as you might guess. And I'll talk to you a little bit about that. And we had a total of over 100 oral presentations and 35 posters. So that was good. Okay, we had uh, five panels of experts. And this was really nice. One of the blessings of having it at the UN was that we had actual living UN people come in who didn't know anything about this particular topic. And actually they participated as part of this. And now you're getting close to the level of decision makers, which is where you want to be. And so uh, it talks about national security and, how, and roles in planetary defense and UN, UN and international disaster management. Uh, clear, concise, correct information to the public, which is something that's very important. Uh, from our first conference, by the way, uh, one of the uh, topics, uh, one of the Presentation was by Larry Niven. You probably know him. He's written a science, science fiction books or two. And uh, his comment was, well, you know, there's a giggle factor associated with this. People don't think this is going to be a million years off. What's going to happen to us? Why should we worry about it? And he said, that's something you really got to do something about. So, And that's kind of what that's talking about. And there's been a lot done since uh, that. Uh, back at that 2004 conference, there was no authoritative source on planetary defense uh, that was relatively uh, was easily available. And uh, immediately after that, ESA and NASA set up these really nice web pages where there's every information you want to know about what's been detected. And, and there's nice stuff on there about conferences, the conferences too. And that last one is particularly important. Uh, that one talks about the legal and policy issues. And you might not think that that's going to be much issue. We got something coming. We're actually going to do something about it. However, and I'll describe what some of those are, but it's uh, not a given that uh, things might bog down, which is not, which is very, you don't want to happen if you got a threat coming. Okay. Why is this not working now? I said.
Ah, there we go. All right, so we did, uh, we, we've for the last five, five or six conferences have a, a hypothetical planetary uh, 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 asteroid threat exercise, asteroid impact threat exercise. And the purpose of that is to start to raise some of these issues. Uh, the technical stuff, I don't think any of us have any, uh, any concern about the possibility that we actually could do something about an asteroid. But making the decision to do that is going to run into a lot of problems, things like legal issues and other types of policy issues. Interestingly enough, we did a, one of our conferences, we had uh, a, a threat where it, we posed an impact in, uh, that was going to affect uh, the people of France very badly, shall I say. And uh, there was we, we have a decision-making panel there. And the, the person that represented France said there's no way that a, we're, our country will support doing anything, particularly using any kind of a nuclear explosive, to take out an asteroid, even though it's going to threaten our, our people. And we thought that was a, kind of an interesting statement. I don't know if that would be officially the, the point of view, but the point is that these things come up, and if it's a really bad threat and you have to spend time dealing with these issues, it can affect your response. And, um, and so we look at the consequences of impact, we, and I'll show you some of that sort of thing, uh, capabilities, how you would actually deflect things, uh, possible legal and policy issues, that's a good one. And then looking at short, our goal is really to look at shortcomings and barriers that might influence the ability to make critical decisions, so. Okay, I think your system's acting funny again. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah, please do. I'll put this aside. So okay. next next chart, please. Okay, so we had uh, uh, basically the way something like this would start, and many of you probably know what's out there now that for doing this so, uh, these types of warnings, but there's a group called the International Asteroid Warning Net Network, um, and there's a second one called Mission Space Mission Planning Advisory Group, and these were both established by UN resolution in uh, like 2014 or something like that. And um, th the objective was to basically bring together all of the uh, observation uh, entities uh, planet-wise and to have them feeding into a common location. And then this particular group would actually meet and decide whether or not that threat is real and uh, confirm that it's real if they find there is one. And um, they would... Um, provide a, uh, a warning to the United Nations if there's an object greater than about 50 meters and is detected with a probability of impact greater than 1%. And so um, given that, the space, this place mission uh, planning advisory group is designed to basically stitch together the space agencies, the entities that actually would be able to do something, to bring them together to try to decide on how a mission would be set up to take care of something like that. And, uh, and they, they, you can see what kind of uh, actions they might look at, things like fast flyby and mission orbit, characterize an object, mission deflect, and so forth. And uh, that was, and I actually served on the UN, the, uh, UN committee that, that developed the, uh, these particular entities. Next chart, please. Okay, so basically this particular case, our, uh, our threat exercise started right here with a, a warning from this IWAN group that there was a uh, 220 to 60 meter uh, asteroid, a fairly good size, as you can see. It was discovered that it had a 1% probability of impacting Earth on 22 October 2036, about 13 years after discovery. And you can see that that little chart that shows you that would be a bad day. So uh, that was the, this was the first time we've ever done a really large one, and uh, this first time we've ever done one in the Southern Hemisphere. Next chart. 
So this is a, just a series of uh, charts. This is done by Paul Chodas at JPL. But it, these little dots here are basically, uh, each one's a prediction of where that asteroid could be along that line at some given time. And so, uh, and that line you see, that fan is what's approaching Earth. And so if you wanna just kind of click through these charts reasonably quickly, you'll see this thing and it gives you an idea what it looks like. Okay, and so basically that's, that band then, that part of that, that cloud that crosses Earth means that an asteroid could strike at any one of those, loca any location in that or along that line. And so if you, in a, in a real event, this is the kind of thing that you would see at the first, first time through. And so right now you can see that it's crossing here and get the next chart, please. And there it also extends across that, that part of the planet as well. And we'll find out later on that it actually hits uh, down in, in South Africa, which is, uh, or in, I guess in Africa, and it's really uh, a nasty little event. Next chart. So this is what that uncertainty region looks, and then you can see how that line crosses the planet. And the areas it potentially could be affected. One of the things to be thinking about here is if you're, you know, we've done some in other places, like we did one in Houston, for Houston Texas, and also an ex a threat exercise, where it was, an out, was out in California, up right off the coast of Los Angeles. We thought that would be a nice place to see. <laughs> and. Uh, so uh, in that particular case, it was uh, uh, it was about uh, two weeks, two three weeks before you got a good a good prediction of where this thing was going to hit, and uh, prior to that time, it was crossing a chunk of the Pacific and crossed over uh, you know California and out into lands beyond that. But once you can get get it within radar sights, you can really nail it down. It turned out the predicted impact point was in Pasadena, which of course is at JPL, which we, we thought would be a quite appropriate spot for some reason. I don't. Anyway, we do this. I should say we did. We had a meeting in Japan, and uh, uh, we did one there where the impact point was going to be in Tokyo, and and of course it was one that would require a, a nuclear explosive, and and we were a little hesitant to do it there, and uh, it turned out that that was it was really an interesting discussion because our leadership panel had a member of, the, of you know somebody from Japan. It was really hard for him to think about using a nuclear explosive to do anything like that, even if it was to save his uh, his area. So anyway, next chart. Okay, and here's um, here's how that position uncertainty looks if you look at it in the broad sense. And um, and there's Earth in the middle, you see Moon's orbit, but it's really a big, uh, a big uncertainty. And it'll be that way for a while until you actually get some good measurements. Next chart. Okay, so we're now 13 years out. It wouldn't, it, we knew that much. I was recommending we do something about it. Some of the questions, I, options are to do a, a fast flyby, which would give you some information on the object and where it is and really improve the orbit. Uh, if you could, you could also do a reconnaissance mission, which where you'd actually fly something and orbit the object, which might not be a bad idea too. And actually in, in the Japanese uh, scenario, we actually had an object that orbited the planet, or, orbited that one, which turned out to be quite fortuitous because it had a moon. A large moon that also uh, caused trouble if it actually impacted. And uh, so, uh, once we got approval from the the organizing, uh, not the organizing, but the decision makers, uh, it turned out that using a uh, nuclear explosive on that on that uh, orbiter could take out both objects, move them both enough so they would miss Earth, which turned out to be quite fortuitous. So, in any event, what so what else should you do? And then. 
are there agreements and processes in place to, to actually uh, affect the deflection action? So next chart. So this is what, uh, so basically there was another one that came in a little bit later, about a year later, you get uh, impact. It was gonna occur in 12 years, 100% probability. Turns out it's estimated size with 300 to 880 meters, all both large enough to do substantial damage and cause uh, uh, some level of global, global effects. The damage level was 76 megatons to 110 gigatons, and millions of people could be affected with possible global, global consequences, and it was an impact in West Africa. So I might mention we did one in Bangladesh some years ago, and, um, and that one of the major issues there was that you had about 80 million people that you had to, to evacuate from the impact area. And neighboring countries said, no, you're not, we're not going to accept those people. So these are the kind of things that will come up that will really affect. And also India at that time said, this is all fictitious, you know, these were not real people, of course. But uh, the idea was that um, India said that, well, we're going to hit it with a nuke. And uh, another country said, no, you're not. So in any event, it's just it's interesting to see what these raise uh, as you go forward. Next chart. So it turned out that deflection possibilities that uh, same page came up with were uh, you know, really trying to deliver the minimum mass to assure deflection away from Earth. You could also deflect it uh, somewhere else on Earth if you if you hit it with the right mass, which that's not very taste, tasty either, you know. That's a, so anyway, in this particular case, the deflection alternatives were connected impact, a kinetic impact, and uh, this kind of gives you an idea about how that would launch, how what that would take for such a big object. And it would require about, if you want to guarantee it at that level, uh, and with what we know about the uncertainty that you want to get that object, the maximum object size off of our planet, it would take about 1,300 launches of a Falcon Heavy to deliver enough kinetic impact to that. Or you could launch two Falcon Heavy launches with a nuclear explosive device. And so, again, these don't assume any kind of mission failures, launch failures, anything else. This is, a, and then, of course, you would to compensate for any kind of failure, you should also have to increase the number of launches. So in any event, that's really interesting to see how these things work out. Next chart. And so the key, key decisions were, can we use a nuclear device? Uh, outer Space Treaty says you, you can't put anything in orbit or station in space, and, um, and you can't let the use anything up there like that. So, um, and then who decides? It turns out the National Security Council uh, the UN Security Council has extraordinary power to supersede rules of international law, but it requires votes of nine to 15 members. No opposing vote by any one of the five permanent members. So you begin to see that there could be political issues that would really affect time, and that's that's the key. And there were, and then other considerations. Next chart. So um, on this, if you want to see more on the threat scenario, there's a lot of detail at the JPL website. Uh, and, I, and I suggest you go there, cmeos.jpl.nasa.gov. And you can find stuff on PBC 23 and also other, other uh, uh, conferences at, at that same location. And um, there are some conference summary reports there. It talks about this planetary defense decision tree and legal policy issues. Uh, and Alyssa has already briefed this group earlier, I think. And so that's good. And there are uh, video presentations of the full session on the UN website. So I think you can find it there. And I'm worth, it's really worth looking at because you can see how, what these issues are and how they're received. Next chart. 
So coming up in 2025, we have a conference that's coming in, you know, every two years. So we'll have the next two. We don't know quite yet, but we're working on that. In 2029, that's going to be a really good one. We've got a close, a very close flyby of the 300-meter asteroid Apophis. It'll be inside the Geo Belt, so, so should be visible from the ground, but with naked eye if you're in the right place. And um, we're also looking forward to an international year of planetary defense. That's something that I'm on the group that's trying to set that up, and uh, it should be try to use Apophis as a real uh, learning tool for how this all works. And then we'll have a conference that year, and it's going to be in a good location for viewing Apophis go by. So next chart. I think that's it. So come to the conference. Thank you, Bill. Uh, I am very honored to be part of those series of plant defense conferences. <clears throat> I do have a question for you. Um, as a result of doing those exercises at the conferences, how are we better prepared to an eventuality of an actual event, in your opinion? Well, I think, I think a couple of things. Number one, the people, I, back in the old days, uh, NASA would not talk about using a, a nuclear explosive uh, to do anything, anything. I mean, it was just something that they just would not talk about. These days, uh, it's it's part of the uh, you know a NASA person did those uh, threat scenarios and what to do about them, and that was what was on the table as a possibility. So I think that's one thing. Now we've, we're really looking at what our options are realistically. That's good. But secondly, it's also uh, raising uh, people's understanding of what we what the decisions are going to be, what the effects are going to be, what kind of issues are going to be if you have a threat scenario that basically where that that little red line crosses your house. What would you do? If it's going to come down in you know a month, is it going to affect your property values and those kind of things? And so we've given talks to FEMA and such about this, and also stuff at the White House level, uh, just really trying to raise some of these issues and trying to get people ready to understand what's going to happen. So I think it's it. Thank you, Bill. Are there any questions uh, in the room or online? Yes, I, I have a question. Uh, what is what is our confidence level? In, uh, in the accuracy that one could deflect an asteroid by a detonation of a nuclear device. I mean, uh, for example, the DART mission had uh, a huge uncertainty, uh, even with the impact and knowing the masses of the objects, velocity, et cetera, and, and what, kind of, uh, uh, what kind of energy uh, could be imparted to change the orbit. And, and they actually uh, exceeded their expectations. So uh, it was certainly not within the... Uh, the calculated amount of uh, deflection that was uh, estimated, and so with a nuclear explosion, that would be uh, even less certain what the uh, what the energy imparted and and, and velocity changes. Uh, just how how accurately could we actually uh, deflect a, a, an object if, if we tried to do this? Uh, well, simulations said uh, we've had uh, really good work uh, done by uh, let's see that Mark Livermore. Yes. Lawrence Livermore and others on uh, what the effects of a nuclear explosive would be on an asteroid of various types and so forth. And based on that, there's been a, there, there are charts that have been developed, and actually you'll see some of that in some of our past conferences that have described, you know, where, what type of application works. Uh, for example, where does the kinetic impactor really, is a really a useful type tool? Where can you use something like a gravity tractor, which is a very slow method for moving things, but you have to have an awful lot of time to do that. Um, and uh, but nuclear explosives are uh, they are very capable against these types of things. 
And um, in that particular Japanese case, we just happened to put one on there. We didn't know how big it, I guess we did size it uh, reasonably for something of a good size. But again, the moon was there and that type of uh, radiation, you don't have to hit it. You just get close to it, very close. It turns out about 50 meters or so off the surface and you can do some, uh, make get a lot of uh, Delta V into that object. So I think there's a lot of confidence in what those things will do, but it's never been, not really been tested against an object like kinetic impractors have, say in the dark missions. Yeah, I think uh, there were a few non-sliverworm studies that have shown that the object can be completely eliminated a few weeks before impact, if the you know the yield is adjusted and the system is ready to go on short notice, so uh, the power is there. I think the calculations show that the power is there. It hasn't been tested yet, and there is the legal uh, complications that uh, Alisa alluded earlier about uh, you know the international law. Uh, obligations to not having any nuclear devices out in space, even for peaceful uh, use. So these uh, um, complications have to be overcome, but uh, uh, analysis shows that uh, th there is a way to do that. So there were another question here or um, no? I, don't... I think it kind of got answered that the question was, do you need the Falcon Heavy because you need the Delta V or was it multiple nukes for Falcon Heavy? Sounded like you're just talking about one. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's just yeah. Same question. Why two Falcon heavies? Not just one. It's a payload. It's just payload. Why I think. I thought that Elon Musk requested two, no? You can get multiple nukes on one. Yeah. yeah. So. I think there is a question or, of reliability as well, because if you're talking about. Yeah. Uh, yeah. If you're talking about. Uh, a single device to eliminate the threat that might kill millions, yes. you might want to put two of them out there just in case. <laughs> okay. Well, not, it's interesting. There's, I just should mention it. One, if you go to the website, there's a nice little, um, what do you call it? Asteroid deflection tool or simulator. Yeah. And it's where you can actually design a mission and you can pick your launch vehicle and pick some of the uh, potential threat type things that are representative, but not representative of any real threat and design a mission yourself to move something off the planet. And, and I said, they, multiple missions choices and so forth. Yeah. I, I just a technical answer to the question about the accuracy of a nuclear detonation for deflected. Yeah. It doesn't require high accuracy. The, the point is, is, the Earth is a very tiny dot in space. There's a There are a billion asteroids. If one of them happens to be targeted at the Earth, it's a one in a billion you know, sort of thing. And just any deflection will pretty much do it. And not any, but there's a large range of possible deflections that can do it. So you don't have to have small error bars on the amount of deflection required. I think it depends on how much time you have to. That's true. And so if you are it, like yeah, if you have years, you basically you can yeah, you can, can push do one, it in any direction. Absolutely. Absolutely right. And you can do the same thing with uh, like a gravity tractor, which some people seem to like. I think it's kind of interesting when uh, we had that first conference. Uh, hey, we had a, an Air Force general there and somebody asked him, um, what would you do if one was headed something was headed towards Earth? 
And he said, I'd hit it with a big hammer. And I suspect that that might be a, uh, it might be a, a type of solution that people want to handle. So in any event, it's uh, this is, these are the kind of issues that need to be addressed. Also, again, this idea of launching these types of devices, uh, explosives into space is, is a big issue. So that's, that's why I think there's going to be this timing and the decision making is going to be harder almost on the technical stuff. Bill, thank you very much. And the AAA would like to thank you with a, um, with a, uh, oh, look at that. So, that's very nice. Uh, it's a thank you note thank you from the AAA. Thank you very much. And it's my own personal thank you for all the mentoring that you've done to me over 20 years. Ah. Well, thank you. Good work. <laughs> So we heard about threats, we heard about finding them, we heard about the legal obligations, but let's imagine that we have landed on an asteroid. What can we do on it? What kind of uses we can extract from an asteroid? And for this, we will call Joel Sosel to talk about asteroid mining. The only thing is people online, you need to sign, uh, you might want to sign on Zoom as well. So I don't yeah. have the Zoom link. You message it to me, I'll do that. Yeah, I, I uh, messaged you, I emailed you though. Oh, you did? Let me pull it to you again. Did you see a reminder this morning? At seven thirty, there was an email. No, I just I got in from out of town. Recently. Oh, okay. I'll email you right, right, right away. Ah, oh, jeez, hang on. Uh, do you want to swap your talk with the next one in about 10, 15 minutes? Sure. Give me, give so, me. So, would you like to talk now? Yeah, we'll have the same issue though, right? Same, same issue. issue. Okay. So both of you need to um, log in so that your talks can be shared with the online audience. Okay. What was the email? You send it to my transaction. Events. I brought events. Uh, I send it to you from events. Okay. Yeah, so let's I mean, give it a minute. I'm just curious. Oh, yeah. too. I, I've got a hard disk. I mean, the, the drive that will plug into your computer and into his back. My, my presentation won't run on yeah. his computer. It, it happened. Uh, no. I'll, I'll email you again. No, I've got it. Uh, I've got one from 621. I don't have much of an internet connection. Yeah, yeah, same here. That URL. Here's his new one. Found it? Yeah, one sec. Sorry. <laughs> I said get here sooner. Shame on me. <laughs> Terrible. Did you iPhone some asteroid? I did. Can you? One in Cancun. Can you? No, the one that destroyed the dinosaurs. Just wonder if you could aim the camera at the screen. And let him project his I don't know if I have a good enough internet connection to support the Zoom call. Well, no, no. I'm, I'm there's a Wi Fi? Yeah, there's a Wi Fi. What's the Wi Fi? LA County.3 Wi Fi. You see it? There it is. Progress. I email you again. No, no, that won't do it. It's fine. I, we're good. We're making progress here.
So I'm Joel Strussell. I'm the CEO and founder of Transaster Corporation. Um, uh, but I have to hold that. I don't know if I can operate my computer. <laughs> That would be fine. Give it a go. So I'm Joel Sircell, CEO and founder of Transaster Corporation. Transaster is a venture-funded company in, San, in the city of San Fernando. Um, we also have multiple contracts and grants with the Space Force and NASA uh, and DARPA. Uh, and uh, maybe while we're getting set here, I'll tell you a little bit about myself and how I came to this. Uh, before founding Transastra, I spent 14 years at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. At JPL, I had every job. I was a bench-level technologist. I was a project manager. I was the chief architect of JPL's end-to-end -end engineering process for space missions. And I was one of the founders of the PDC, where that PDC study was done. Um, after JPL, I had a senior job in the Air Force at the LA Air Force Base. I think it has a different name now, um, where I was the chief systems engineer of a $22 billion satellite constellation. Transastra is uh, one of four companies that I've founded. Um, one of them uh, has gone public. It's not doing very well, it's gone public. Uh, but I haven't been associated with it for a couple of years. Um, one of them is in stealth, and uh, one of them is my old consultancy. I'm stalling. Um, let's see. My, I got my PhD at Caltech while I was at JPL. And while I was at JPL, I started a program called NSTAR, which was the NASA Solar Electric Propulsion Technology Application Readiness Program which is an acronym that I made up and I'm guilty of that, but it was the first deep space application of ion propulsion. And we flew the NSTAR system on a spacecraft called Deep Space One, which flew by a comet as its primary mission, uh, primary science missions. Primary mission was to fly NSTAR and demonstrate electric propulsion in deep space. Um, we're gonna get feedback in a second if he doesn't mute that. Do you wanna hand me the computer and I'll mute it? Yeah, there's a... Okay. It's using... okay. Um, and then the NSTAR system was also used on the Dawn spacecraft, which flew to the asteroids best in series. So I have some history with asteroids. Um, I'm not sure exactly what to do. That doesn't seem optimal. <laughs> There we go. Here, I'll take it. Still connected to. Uh, Let's see if this works. Can I use that spot? So here, here's HDMI. That's only on Zoom. Here is the HDMI. Perfect. Do you have any video with sound? No. Okay. <laughs> Ah, All right, except All right, are we set? So um, I was going to put my name on the title slide and the, and the name 
and the number of the asteroid that's that's named after that. But uh, I didn't have time to do that. So I have an asteroid, uh, and I can't advance the charts. So Transastra has the long-range vision of we are currently developing the technology to mine asteroids. The vision of the company is to enable humanity to harvest the resources of the asteroids for the benefit of the human race and the biosphere on the Earth. Um, the way we're doing that is we're developing these technologies and we're applying them in the here and now to businesses. Um, we see this as a hundred billion, hundred trillion dollar opportunity over decades, and you know, and the ultimate science authority is is Bill Nye, and he says the first trillionaire will be the person who exploits the resources of the asteroids, um, and uh, I hope he's right. Um, but my personal motivation and the motivation of many people in the company is that the asteroids have enough material to build a radiation shield seven meters thick with a thousand times the surface area of the earth. So you can build worlds in space to support a population of a trillion people in wealth and comfort for a millennium. That's important for humanity to know that that can be done. Planets are very limited. Uh, if we go to Mars and we want to continue population growth, Mars will give us a couple of decades. But the asteroids can give us a thousand years and that's enough time to reach the stars. Uh, what are you trying to do? No, I, I, I'm fine. I didn't advance my presentation. Oh, I see what you're saying. One moment. I, I made the critical error. You have to screen share after you open the presentation in oh. Keynote instead of before. You have to first hold it. Step. Hang on. <laughs> One second. Let's see. It's, I apologize for these technical delays, people. Let's see if this works. Can someone on Zoom tell me if this is working now? Yeah. Well, let's see, I have to advance a slide to test it. Okay. All right. So um, I, I was a, a, a disciple of Gerard O'Neill back in the 70s. He also gave me my first commercial consulting contract. Uh, another Two other people who you might know of who uh, were followers of O'Neill were Peter Diamendes and uh, Jeff Bezos. Um, I think this artwork is actually from Blue Origin. I just stole it off the internet while I was waiting to speak. Um, so, but in order to harvest the asteroids, you need to do four things. One, you have to find them. And you might think that we know where there are enough asteroids. After all, we know the locations of 40,000 asteroids. It turns out, that doesn't hack it. I'll explain why. You have to get to them. Today's, I, my, you know, my PhD is in space propulsion technology. Today's space propulsion technology is just not very cost effective. It's expensive and slow. Then when you get to the asteroid, you cannot land on an asteroid as recent sample return missions have demonstrated. 
OSIRIS-REx went to land on an asteroid and it disappeared into the asteroid and the accelerometers didn't even detect that it hit the surface. The only reason it didn't disappear and get lost in the asteroids is because there was a timer that fired the propulsion system. Only Bruce Willis can walk on asteroids. The rest of us, when we get to them, we have to capture them in a bag. And then when you and then you have to process them. So a few years ago, we started Transastra and we started to invent the technologies to do these four things. We were lucky enough to win several million dollars or a few million dollars of NASA money. We patented these things and proved the technology in the laboratory. And then that allowed us to take these more mature technologies to the private sector and collect several million dollars of private sector investment to scale the company. So let me explain the first problem with asteroid mining. The first problem is we only know where like 0.03% of the asteroids are, 0.04%, something in, there's an error bar of about factor two on that. Um, there are a billion asteroids. We only know where 40,000 of them are. You think, well, 40,000 is plenty, the problem is our statistical models show us that there are thousands of asteroids in highly Earth-like orbits around the sun that are actually energetically easier to get to and back from than the moon. Those are the ones we want to go after. But of those, the ones that would be valuable for mining, we only know where 10 of them are. And that's not enough. So we invented a telescope technology that we call the Sutter Telescope. I wonder if there's a way to make this banner go away. Does anyone know? Yeah, yeah. There's a height, uh, it's a height. From the three dots on the left, there's a height floating um, in the middle. Oh, yeah. Right. Oh, no, next one. Yes. Thanks. Um, oh, you can click, click. Remove that one. <sighs> okay. Sorry, I, I apologize. Um, how do I do that? You see on the left. On the left side, there's a cross. To be honest, I don't have my reading glasses on. Maybe if I look up there. On the left side, there's a cross on the right side. Perfect. Great. Thank you so much. Okay, the Sutter Telescope technology is a thousand times more cost effective at finding asteroids, we think, than today's asteroid uh, telescope surveys. Um, I can't go into the technical details on how it works. There are several innovations. One of them, one of the core innovations, which we call optimized match filter tracking, is patented. And it also uses compound telescopes and commercial methods that are much more cost effective. Currently, we operate two Sutter telescopes, one in Central California, one in Arizona. And in July, we're putting one in Australia. And then next fall, one in, in Colorado. We hope to fly them in space, too. That's a matter of money. So. Thing one is um, prospect the asteroids, find them. Can anyone guess why we call it the Sutter Telescope? Because Sutter's Mill is where they discovered gold in California. That led to the gold rush to California, and we intend to create a gold rush to space. You need, to, you need more effective ways to get to the asteroid, so we invented the omnivore propulsion system. This is a solar thermal rocket that's powered by the sun, without heavy, expensive solar arrays. The sunlight just heats up the engine, and then you can put any propellant in it to produce thrust. And we've tested these in our laboratories, and we have an extensive laboratory 
in San Fernando. If the AIAA would like to come get a tour, we'd be happy to do that. And we've got two large vacuum systems and 100 kilowatts of power with solar simulators to run solar powered rocket engines in vacuum tanks um, or out in our parking lot with solar reflectors. Do you have a way of in flight refueling and capturing more material to? That's the plan. So we've designed a, a, a class of spacecraft that we call APIS, which is named after the uh, genus name for honeybees. And the idea is that they'll go to an asteroid, they'll put it in a bag, use sunlight to process the propellant out of it, then use that propellant to bring back initially propellant to Earth. We have a contract with a publicly traded company for many hundreds of millions of dollars to bring back 100 tons of propellant from an asteroid. Um, we're putting together the financing and the technology to do that. Um, but once you get to the asteroid, you have to do something with it. I was inspired by the ARM mission that was started at JPL by my PhD advisor from Caltech. His name is Fred Kulik. And my partner on the NSTAR project, his name is Dr. John Brophy. They conceived of a project called ARM to go capture an asteroid in a bag and bring it back to the Earth. JPL spent millions on the capture bag technology. We were inspired by that to invent our optical mining method of asteroid mining, where we start by capturing the asteroid in the bag. Um, the capture bag technology has applications today for orbital debris cleanup. And I'll, we'll be making some announcements about some contracts in a matter of days. That's, that's, that's code for, we've been awarded a contract but told not to make an announcement. But we do have on the record a NASA contract in this area and we're working with other government agencies. The picture on the left is a photograph of a small capture bag prototype that we built in the laboratory. We will be building a much larger capture bag prototype soon, and we're looking for the funding to fly this in space, and we put together the business model about what it takes, about how we can make money on cleaning up orbital debris in Earth orbit. Um, uh, then the last one is the optical mining method of asteroid mining. Each one of these technologies has got uh, secret sauce and inventions. Most of them are patented. This one is patented. It's got two or three patents. Um, the picture on the left shows how you would capture an asteroid in a bag and then use large solar concentrators to drill holes in the asteroid. We've done dozens of tests and demonstrations with both actual sunlight and with simulated sunlight using our solar simulators showing that you can drill holes in rocks and extract the volatile materials without digging mach machines with just sunlight and capture bags. So we're very excited about that. So those are the four cornerstone technologies. Um, the application of optical mining is for material processing on the earth. And I won't say too much more about that except to say that it goes to recycling electronics and um, rare and strategic metals. We're working with government sponsors on that. Um, so our roadmap is we have a vision of a world where humanity is capturing the resources of the asteroids and using them to build worlds in space and return precious metals to the Earth. We think that provides an unlimited future of optimism for humanity. In order to enable that, there are core technologies that we've invented and patented, and we're maturing. We're turning those into short-term businesses. We will use those short-term businesses to scale the company 
And then as the company scales, we'll start asteroid mining. People ask me how soon, as soon as possible. We can do it in just a handful of years with funding. It's all based, the only constraint that we have right now is funding in our engineering ability to execute these plans, but we think they're very executable. So on the roadmap, we, we start with space domain awareness. That's a government word for finding things in space. We do that today for the Space Force and for NASA. We report asteroids to the Minor Planet Center every week. And we report spacecraft that we've found to the Space Force all the time. We can track a spacecraft the size of this table at two lunar distances if we don't know where it is. We can do that with a telescope that would cost $3,500 at a camera store using our innovative software technology. We're building compound telescopes and building a network of those uh, around the world right now. Transportation you need for asteroid mining. You can see our omnivore thruster in test there. And we have ambitions to turn that into commercial orbit transfer vehicles. And then asteroid mining um, will be, we'll use that technology with capture bags for orbital debris cleanup and asteroid mining after that. Um, so we've done extensive market studies. Many of the market studies have been funded by NASA, actually. It's a combination of private sector and NASA funding to show that these businesses close. And that's why investors have invested about $9 million in our company. And we project significant revenue from these businesses. Um, so we're doing well. Uh, we've got hundreds of millions of dollars of potential agreements with commercial customers, several million dollars of government funding, several million dollars of private sector. Um, every time I present this chart, I have to change the patent portfolio. Um, we have about total of about 20 patents either issued or pending. They're being issued by the patent office at a rate of about one a month right now. So um, we have four PhDs, two from Caltech on our staff, one from MIT, one from the University of Arizona, University of Arizona for optics. We do a lot of optics um, and a really cool laboratory that we'd love to show off. And you can see who some of our customers and strategic partners are. So if we haven't, I'm sorry, we're probably late because of the technical difficulties, but if there's time for questions, I'd be happy to address them. No questions. <laughs> I have a question. Okay. Uh, with the success of the uh, JWST and the uh, origami technology for the uh, large mirror on it, uh, utilizing something similar, uh, what kind of size uh, uh, solar type uh, collector uh, mirrors would you uh, suspect that you could perhaps launch for, uh, for your mining uh, processing operations? Um, the, the current reflectors that we have in-house are just little small ones at about a meter, but we've designed them up to 50 meters in diameter out of um, flexible materials. It happens that our director of engineering, Hayden Burgoyne, did his PhD at Caltech in the group that's really good on origami folding of deployable structures. So that's a great question. Um, yeah, the biggest reflector we anticipate is about 50 meters in diameter. Put two of those on a big vehicle that can be launched into space. Two of those big, we call that big vehicle Queen Bee. We can launch two of them on a Starship or one on a New Glenn. 
and each one could bring back 3,000 tons of propellant from a large, uh, what we would consider a large mined asteroid, what the asteroid community would consider a small one, up to 30 meters in diameter. Any other question? Hey, Joel. Joel, come, come back. Do you know anyone who can, uh, who knows how to arrive at asteroid, extract some material from asteroid, and use this material? That's what we're trying to do. Oh, I found you. Okay. So I need to talk to you because I'm going to give a talk later that might use your approach. And I want to see what you might say about it. But in the meanwhile, the IWA would like to thank you for your certificate. Oh, that's, that's wonderful. Thank you so much. So, smile to the camera. <laughs> okay, she's one, two, three. Another one, one, two, three. Wonderful, excellent. Thank and you, Joel. Thank you so much. So, Very exciting and all the best. Sounds like you are on a takeover. So, Mark, you're next. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, do you have any chance or you just talk? Or? Yeah, yeah. Oh, you have. Oh, oh, it's all up. Yeah, we, we managed to email. Hi, sure. Uh, and I guess there's a camera somewhere. Here we go. Um, I'm Mark Henley. I, I've worked uh, in aerospace for a long time and been retired for oh, half a dozen years. and. Um, still somewhat active in at least uh, reading things and uh, get out there once in a while. Um, I, I worked for Boeing for 23 of those years and Rockwell was part of that and uh, other places, General uh, Dynamics before that. Uh, anyway, I, I had a, a nice career and uh, I'm enjoying not working too, um, but I do miss it a bit. And I've had some interest in um, in my career, part of it was to study laser power beaming, um, and in particular for a, a lunar application to send power into the polar shadow regions so that you could um, get ice. Yeah, and that was oh, some 20 plus years ago that we were uh, working at before it became popular. Uh, so I had a, you know, a, some background in laser illumination um, and wanted to talk to the group when I saw this uh, this opportunity. Let's see, um, the things that I want to talk about, uh, the title was Laser Illumination of Meteor Showers and their Cometary Debris uh, Streams. They're, that's what meteor showers really are. Uh, and it's to characterize and mitigate hazards of Earth impact, in particular from those debris streams. Now, one is this uh, Younger Dryas Impact Hypothesis. I don't know how many are familiar with that, but there's a um, there's a group of, uh, of scientists who believe that uh, there was a fairly major impact, not major like a dinosaur killer, but major like uh, killing all the, the large mammals that used to survive uh, only 12,000 years ago. Um, so that's quite recent, very, very recent geologically. Um, and that it seems to be associated with Enki's comet, this debris stream. The uh, second one is laser ranging and lidar imaging, uh, some ideas about how it may be used. Um, it's good for daytime operation as well as nighttime, looking towards the sun even, or close to the sun. And one could in concept to determine the topography, the details of the, of the asteroid or, or cometary body's uh, 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 topography as well as how it's spinning. Uh, and then, laser mitigation, a little bit of discussion about how lasers might be used to illuminate uh, 
hazardous objects that, uh, you know, maybe not the largest ones that are going to really wipe people out, but something like the Tunguska event, uh, for example, could probably be mitigated uh, without too much trouble. So next, we'll, we'll all just call out the charts and we'll go through this. Uh, this was a, uh, off of a publication by this Comet Research Group that has, a, a, and it's got a picture of a younger Dryas boundary field up in the upper left. And, and opposing that for reference is the Australasian impact field. It's a tectite strewn field. Um, I'll just mention in passing that there is at least one guy who thinks that the two are associated, that one is an impact on an ice sheet, uh, you know, back when we had an ice age that covered Canada and Northern America, and that the antipodal point is where the uh, ejecta curtain converged, and that caused that uh, Australasian impact field. And it may be a series of impacts rather than just one impact. In any case, this is um, this is from this research group's uh, their wording that a giant broken up comet caused airbursts or craters across the northern hemisphere, deposited melted material in the younger Dryas boundary layer, which is uh, found along with the uh, kind of a change in the uh, is where the Clovis culture uh, had. You know, a certain kind of uh, of points on arrowheads suddenly vanished uh, at, at about this point. At, anyway, uh, melted the ice sheets possibly by uh, debris that landed on the ice sheet, making it dark so that it absorbs sunlight and then melts. Uh, halted the ocean circulation, changed things a lot. You know, it was a thousand years of quite cold environment uh, after after starting to get warm. And then, uh, and a lot of animals died, uh, you know, ground sloths and uh, mammoths and, you know, the, the giant uh, saber-toothed tigers and, you know, these kind of animals that were in. And human population seemed to drop you know, dramatically at that time, too. So there are um, a lot of publications out there, and you could review that and find pro and con uh, discussion, but these are, you know, well-reviewed uh, publications. It struck me that this is very, very recent geologically. So the next chart is uh, within this uh, uh, within this stream. There are there are I think four different streams of the, the torrids, uh, and one of them is the beta torrid debris stream, which seems to come in about now. Um, this you know around the summer solstice. I think it's the peak is the 28th of June, and um, they tend to come in from close to the sun. So astronomers don't normally see these. They're shooting stars that don't get seen, and they tend to have a lot of uh, larger objects in that um, you know could be uh, things like the Tunguska event, which is you know at least uh, one researcher believes that that was uh, the source of this latest big impact on Earth. Um, what else can I say here? Just some references. Uh, they're not all there. It's got a pretty high hourly rate. And it's one example. This the same technique that we'll talk about can be used for you know, any shower, but this is one that seems to be hazardous. Next. 
Uh, how do we assess news in commentary debris streams? Uh, I'm, you know, these may not be large near-Earth objects, but uh, they, they may be large enough to do real damage. Uh, we know the point of origin, so we know the radiant of the meteor stream. It's going to come from a very small point in the sky, and we can point, um, and we know the velocity. We know, we know the speed they're coming in at. So we can beam laser pulses toward that radiant and look for reflections. And um, the uh, reflected laser light will have a Doppler shift because of the speed of the incoming bodies. And uh, you'll have a delay that tells you how far away they are, just like a, you know, very much like the, the cop with his uh, lighter gun will tell how fast you're going, you know, in which car he's pointing at. Um, you can map selectively NEOs to determine the detailed shape and spin rate. And uh, this is very much like a, uh, uh, like something that was done with the Arecibo radio telescope to model uh, various asteroids. So I have one example that I'll bring up on the next chart. Um, and there it is, this Cleopatra uh, satellite, it's spelled with a K. I'll pass around this little, little model so you can kind of touch it as well. But um, this was a, a model that was developed using uh, using the Arecibo radar to um, get some some details of uh, what the shape of this metallic asteroid was. This, this is not one that's an Earth threatening threatening uh, thing. Here's the little certificate. <laughs> certificate of authenticity of that one. That is. <laughs> anyway, um, and it's you know. I, the point is that the same general technique could be used with laser, laser systems to obtain very detailed models of what, what they look like and what their spin rate is, and, uh, and to be able to um, you know, figure out what happens. Uh, you know, uh, for example, if you were to illuminate them more strongly. Uh, let's go to the next one. Um, so this is a, a little bit of discussion, and I didn't know how much time I'll have, so I, I made it a bit short. But um, this is just a, a one concept of orbital debris removal using lasers, something that's been studied by, by uh, many people, I think aerospace as well as others, and um, ESA as well. And uh, it's possible to, uh, at least in concept, to uh, use lasers that are ground-based in order to remove LEO debris um, by repeatedly hitting it with a, a small burst as it happens to be in the field of view and changing the velocity. Now, um, that's just the, the general concept, the picture. Let's go to the next slide. Um, and then a similar technique may be used to, uh, to change the orbit slightly of a of an impacting body. And it depends on the size of it, the distance, and all these things. Well, one point is that if you're going to heat the remnants of a volatile uh, uh, comet, some chunk of uh, icy rock, you'll, you'll be able to um, cause it to volatilize and have a propulsive effect much more easily than you can with a uh, uh, a rock or a piece of uh, a spacecraft, uh, you know, that's uh, now debris in orbit. So it's uh, it's uh, pretty simple to uh, to cause ice to evaporate, um, especially if it's a, a black 
you know, cover with black soot the, the thing that you're shooting at. Um, you can, let's go back to that chart, though. I don't want to go too fast. You can use, in concept, you can use large telescopes on Earth to do this, uh, possibly, with adaptive optics. There are other applications of such telescopes. You can also use telescopes like this uh, with lasers uh, in space uh, or on the moon, and um, where you don't have atmospheric effects, no, no uh, adaptive optics required. And you have a uh, large aperture without gravity, so it's, and you can, in concept, have a very large mirror, uh, which helps the aperture. Um, and again, my original interest in this was the uh, laser um, uh, transmission of power from one point to another on the surface of the moon. There, there have been other studies of, uh, of power transmission from, uh, let's say, the L1 point. There was a Langley NASA Langley study of that some time ago uh, for power at night during the 14-day night or longer distance to power transmission between the Earth and Moon. And in the far term, people have talked about uh, space solar power and uh, such a system. If you had one that was a laser-based system, it would certainly be powerful enough to uh, to also modify the orbit of uh, incoming uh, cometary debris. And a lot of the details depend upon how much time you have and you know, how, 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 uh, what your warning is before you have to start uh, uh, start checking things, you know, start taking action. Um, I'm just about done. I think I might have a summary chart, and that's about it. Recommendations. Uh, first, recognize that there are so there. Uh, the geologically recent climate changes and megafaunal extinctions, that is the end of the ice ages, uh, may have been precipitated by a cometary uh, uh, debris impacts on Earth. And that's, that's um, it's not outlandish and it's very recent geologically to have this in, you know, in the last, uh, within the last hundred thousand years, that's, that's, you know, a blink of an eye compared to uh, the Cretaceous tertiary boundary. Um, the um, laser telescopes are, you can be used to search uh, for objects and to characterize them, to model them, uh, to get the details of topography and spin. And uh, you may be able to use uh, the same or, or more powerful telescopes to uh, modify the orbit. That's it. Thank you, thank you, Mark. Uh, <clears throat> a question from Joy. So, if you're to do the lidar method to find the topography, what distance would the object be at, and what would be the spot size? And how do you get topography from that? Well, <laughs> so, so the, to repeat the question is, uh, what would the distance and spot size be in order to get yeah, topography so. by laser illumination? And I, I don't want to be the one to give specifics. I'd refer you to somebody else who probably worked on that uh, mission. I think maybe Jean uh, uh, Margot out of uh, UCLA. I think he was at Cornell at that time. Um, and you know, he'd be a good one to ask, I think. Was or, they use some kind of? Yeah, of course, it depends upon the size of the object you're, you're viewing, too. Sure. Yeah. It just seems seems hard for me to see how you could get a small enough size, spot size 
over millions of kilometers of space to get detailed topography? Well, it, I don't know how many millions of kilometers we're talking about. Um, we've got what the sun is 93 million miles, so uh, it's, you know 150 million kilometers. Yeah, it's pretty far away. But um, okay. But this other Cleopatra example was uh, quite a bit farther for a much larger body, and uh, and the wavelength was. Uh, uh, 10,000 times larger. So the, the wavelength of light and spreading, you don't have to have, you know, the, the, uh, the wavelength of light doesn't spread as much. Yeah. So in the equation, there are a lot of, lot of variables, the aperture, the, um, uh, you know, the quality, beam quality, all sorts of things go into it. Um, and I, I can't answer it off the cuff unless you, without specifics. But, but I believe it's quite reasonable to do that. And uh, certainly for objects that happen to be coming close to the Earth out of the radiant of the debris stream you know, during meteor shower, that's, uh, that's the easiest way to spot. I have a question on your, uh, on your uh, laser technology. At 10.06 uh, microns, would these be niodium diag lasers that you're proposing to, uh, for use? Yeah, typically, typically. I mean, that's a good wavelength. It's good for atmospheric uh, uh, penetration, you, the atmosphere doesn't absorb very much of that wavelength. And, you know, I, I like that. It's, it's very efficient. It's a well-developed, uh, uh, you know, industrially developed, you know, high power. So now, the ag lasers, is that, uh, is that the technology that you're proposing? Uh, I, I particularly like niodymium ag, yes. Um, you know, because it's got great atmospheric transmissivity in particular, uh, and, and because the technology is well developed, it's it, it's uh, it's you know commercially available at, at uh, fairly high power and uh, and has had you know a lot of experience with. Uh, <clears throat> one comment from me uh, earlier, Joel uh, Marx. Uh, mentioned that he visited this site in Italy where he touched the layer of uh, volcanic ash that separated the extinction of the dinosaurs, right, 66 million years ago. I think there is a site in Arizona with a similar uh, layer of ash that separates the extinction of the Clovis people Yes. Uh, in Arizona, right? There is a place? Yeah, yeah I think there are, there are several places where you can find uh, uh, markers of impact. I didn't mention this, but it's uh, uh, one of them is in, in ice cores out of Greenland. You can find uh, nano diamonds and uh, uh, iridium, uh, other other rare earth elements that are associated with the uh, uh, with asteroidal impacts. I think you're referring to uh, there's a, a black map that's found in a lot of areas where, where there's a marker in the in the geological uh, uh, stack of, uh, you know, of deposits. So there's a there's a change in the uh, in the marker uh, there that may or may not be due to widespread burning of forests, and and uh, it might also be due to uh, algae. Uh, you know, some people say that it's algae instead of just uh, uh, you know widespread burning of forests and uh, and dust in the air, things like that. But but things like iridium and nano diamonds, those are harder to explain. Uh, by other natural uh, processes. They seem to be pretty strong markers for uh, an impact. 
Thank you, Mark, and there's a certificate of appreciation from the AAA. It's presented to you here. Okay, please. Three. One, two, three. Right, one more. One, two, three. Thank you. Thank you very much. And our friend Madhu is ready? Yeah, he's ready. Hello, Madhu. Are you online? I cannot hear him. It should be there. Uh, can you hear me, guys? Now we can hear you. Oh, good. No, I don't think my camera is on now, but uh, um, a doctor says I should not see any of you. Just kidding. <laughs> but, uh, but uh, uh, you know, I just, uh, I just came back, and uh, I'm uh, uh, happy to uh, hear that uh, uh, planetary defense is alive and well. And um, uh, in matters like this, uh, there is no substitute uh, for a real happening. And uh, uh, let me go through a few slides in no particular order. And uh, um, we'd uh, uh, entertain some questions if you like. The title of my talk is Brief History and Highlights. Uh, I wouldn't be talking much about that, but uh, uh, in the general awareness of uh, of this uh, uh, very very important um, uh, uh, phenomenon that uh, we need to have a handle on, um, I would like you all to take a look at uh, the uh, action that is going on in the field. I won't spend time on this, but uh, you can um, look them over um, when you have the time. Uh, these are current happenings. Now, <laughs> you know, what impressed me the most, uh, particularly in the past few days, uh, in fact, uh, astronomers know this over the past few centuries, and that is uh, uh, our uh, universe, um, or to even scale it down to our uh, galaxy, um, is an extremely dynamic place. And extremely dynamic is not really the term. Uh, I think we should think about it in terms of um, even better words uh, that don't exist in the lexicon, uh, because the energies involved are truly, truly astounding. Now, let me show you an image. Are you able to see these? Yeah. No? Yeah. Yes. Oh, good. But he's not in the presentation mode. Oh, because John is complaining. Uh, and did I? Madhu, can you put your presentation into presentation mode so that? Oh, you sure. Can the audience? Is that better? Yeah. I think so. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Good. So okay. Um, <clears throat> so we live in an extremely energetic uh, universe, and uh, just to give you a rough idea. We are in a very small part, a corner of the universe, and our little galaxy, which is a very medium, medium galaxy, uh, it's only in the past few decades we have been able to see what is happening deep in the heart of our, our galaxy, our own, our own little galaxy. And um, you may have heard about uh, Sagittarius A, 
the uh, supermassive black hole around which we are all, um, you know, we are all moving in concert. And now, um, recently, some more images have been coming down, both from NASA and from our observatories in space, as well as ground-based observatories. And a few days ago, a few days ago, the Meerkat Observatory produced an image that showed uh, what is happening uh, in uh, the galactic center. And I could not believe the energies that are involved in these bunch of stars that are going round and round the super massive galaxy that we call Sagittarius A star. And uh, this is the image that came down to us. What it tells us is that if we are thinking about asteroids and comets in our teeny, teeny solar system, imagine what is being shredded and ground to dust uh, in the middle of the galactic center. So with that in mind, I thought um, we could uh, we could appreciate how small we are, how fragile we are uh, in our corner of our little solar system. Um, you probably heard from all of the professors there about the various eras um, um, and various uh, ages of Earth uh, when um, uh, we have had what we call um, the extinction events. And just going back 500 million years, you see what has happened. And all of us tend to talk more or less about the, about the, uh, uh, the KT events, that's also called the Cretaceous Pelagenic event. And, um, and some dramatic things happened uh, in the shaping of Earth uh, uh, in the past uh, uh, millions of years. And um, if you look at the, uh, uh, um, the Cretaceous pelagenic extinction event, uh, you will notice planet Earth did not look like it is today because of the tectonic movements and so on. But the impact happened. Can you see my cursor? Are you able to see my cursor, uh, Nahum? Yes, yes. Oh, good. Impact happened somewhere here. And there were a lot of things happening around that time. And there was a lot of debate and discussion about uh, how it happened, where uh, resonant effects happened. But actually, an impact like uh, what happened in Chicxulub impacted all of planet Earth. And I think you want to read this paper. Uh, it is again stunning that in such a small place like our planet, uh, even those energies that are released by a small comet can completely and utterly cause devastation that will run into hundreds of years before it stabilizes. And uh, again, it is very hard to fathom the, the energies involved in impacts like this. Of course, we know that um, uh, if the moon is impacted all the time, 
why are we why are we saved from this? The fact is we are also being hit all the time. Our atmosphere helps us a little bit, but um, in general, uh, because of the weathering on on planet Earth, you know, we tend to see very little of these things that we see on the moon. So um, what are some of the close calls that we have had? Uh, from the scriptures, we know that some crazy things have happened in the past. And uh, um, if we go down to our century, or just the past century, you'll see that uh, um, our own land masses have got hit. And, uh, and then you probably heard Davud talk to you all about the dramatic events uh, from um, the um, uh, uh, shoemaker Levy Nine. Even I mean, I'm so happy that uh, uh, David was able to uh, talk to you about this. Again, all this tells you we are in a precarious uh, situation. Uh, uh, it's kind of a, a roulette that's going on, and uh, as, unless we we suffer. Um, we don't seem to respond as a species and worse still in our form of governance. So these are the, you know, this is the way that uh, Shoemaker Levy 9 informed us what little objects in our little part of our universe can do to us. And this is the mother of all planets, uh, Jupiter, uh, that is being bombarded uh, nonstop uh, during the event, and uh, it tells you what these objects do when faced uh, with gravity. They break up, and they give you a little time, and they come back and give you a whacking, and that will send you back to the Stone Age. And anyhow, coming closer to us, look at it, just t 10 years ago, <laughs> Russia suffered this incredible event. If this had happened over a city a small city, uh, let us say a small city in the U.S., that would change the mind of Congress. Absolutely, on day one. But I hope things like that don't happen. And this is why I believe in divine providence. I still can't understand why uh, we are not getting whacked this way. But let us let us pray. That as exactly what uh, NASA administrator said when he was asked, "What do? You, what are your plans?" if something hits you. And that is, he says, pray. <laughs> so, so we are at that situation. Anyhow, further on, we know that uh, Mars had a close encounter uh, not too long ago, <laughs> less, than, less than 10 years ago. So these things are happening all the time. And we also know when you look through SOHO and other solar telescopes, there are many comets in our solar, or in our solar system um, that are running right into the, the sun. And so all of these things are happening in a very dyna dynamic and energetic manner. Um, I'm going to leave my um, set of uh, um, uh, charts that I keep track of in terms of uh, a bibliography of all things uh, that people write about. And I know that Nahum is a star uh, in the most recent activities dealing with planetary defense, uh, defense conferences. 
my uh, thoughts on this is that all of you want to stay uh, current. For those who particularly are new to the field, uh, you want to stay current. And, um, and these are some of the, um, the sites that you can go to to pick up uh, stuff on all the action happening, not yesterday, but today. Um, and uh, of course, as luck would have it, uh, there is an incredible movie out there. It started, I think, uh, yesterday. It was a premiere or uh, around that time. I hope all of you go, all of you go see this because uh, at the at the very least, uh, it will bring about some awareness. I've not seen it yet, but uh, uh, there are a lot of A-listers uh, in the on the set, so we hope uh, you all go to see it. Asteroid Day is June 30th, and I saw a nice slide uh, that talked about uh, um, the Asteroid Day celebration coming up. And I'm glad that uh, um, that all of you enjoyed this event here. And uh, with that, uh, uh, I'm happy to discuss uh, anything. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Madhu. Uh, an exciting presentation. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> So do you feel that as a professor at UEC, you inspired a few new enthusiastic scientists and engineers about planetary defense? Uh, 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 Nahum, I did not hear you well. Try again. Do you feel that through your work at UEC, you inspired a few of the next generation of planetary defenders? Of course they do. Of course they do. And uh, uh, it is also... Um, it is not only part of uh, not only part of um, um, uh, the space community uh, that uh, is attracted to this uh, uh, Nahum, as you know. Um, you know, it is a it is a a collaborative um, collaborative uh, um, activity, and uh, uh, all the um, disciplines are involved, as you very well know. I think your son is involved in it too. And, uh, you know, um, we all appreciate you bringing um, the younger generation on board um, where um, the, the activity, um, the activities of a very, very high consequence uh, should things happen. And, uh, um, you know, the, the school, uh, the School of Engineering is involved. The School of Architecture is involved, and uh, several conferences besides the one you run, the International Conference, uh, Nahum. And I think you are the target for the next um, National Space Society's uh, International Space Development Conference uh, happening in Los Angeles next year. So, so watch out for that too. <laughs> okay, thank you for the heads up. That's great. I'll be happy to support it. Um, any questions for Madhu or comments online or in person? I, I have a comment. Uh, yeah. I, I know that this is this is maybe a little bit outside the scope of uh, of this particular symposium, but uh, uh, I wanted to point out that even if we were able to uh, to uh, to provide protection from from asteroid impacts, um, and I know that uh, that that was that there was a the, uh, the, the, the showing there of the uh, enormous amounts of energy that, that our galaxy 
uh, has uh, because of the black hole, at the, uh, the supermassive black hole. I want to point out that in October of, uh, of last year, 1922, there was a massive, and this was huge, gamma ray burst that occurred in the galaxy billions of, mile, billions of miles away from the Earth that actually altered our atmosphere. It partially ionized our atmosphere, depleted ozone layer, altered uh, radio communications. This is the brightest, most intense gamma ray burst that had ever been seen before. It, it, it sorely blinded uh, some, some of the uh, uh, satellites that detect gamma ray bursts. And, and if this had occurred somewhere within our galaxy and aimed towards the Earth, uh, we wouldn't be here today. And so I just wanted to point out that beyond just asteroids, there are other dangers uh, from space that, that, that go beyond just impacts. But uh, there, there's nothing we can do about it. <laughs> this, is, this is absolutely true. And uh, I think um, gamma ray bursts are one of them. And we don't have to go that far. Our sun tends to burp sometimes. We call them coronal mass ejections. And uh, yeah, they are also of a concern because even during human space flight missions, you know, we got to watch what Mr. Sun is up to. And uh, uh, I, I'm told that during an Apollo mission, <laughs> they escaped with the skin of their teeth. So, um, so you're absolutely right. I hope uh, we all impress upon the audience that cosmic energies are something to just um, uh, be in awe. And uh, even on Earth, uh, the energies involved in volcanism, tsunamis, uh, why, even, uh, uh, even tornadoes. Uh, we are not used to managing such, um, such energy. So again, uh, the reason for divine providence. I, I, I don't know if anybody has done a probability study on all of these cosmic phenomena. Um, I know that Joe Pelton has a book called um, Handbook of, um, of um, the cosmic, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, hazards. Awesome. Awesome. And, uh, uh, you know, so, so these are things that uh, we need to keep in mind when handling and nature. Absolutely, I think that uh, by picking the topic of deflecting an asteroid, I just picked the low-hanging fruit out of all of those hazards. So um, it's the easy one. Um, I think next one is we are going to learn how to deflect an asteroid with a movie. <laughs> and this will be a talk by Phil Gorus. Um, Thanks, Nahum. Thank you, there... Phil, and uh, it's a pleasure to. I'll be watching. We need to find here. Just so play there. Are you, are you it should work. Oh, okay, that's the answer. No. Wait, wait, wait. For me, it's working. You know, I can move. Uh, but from your direction, you might have to point it here. Okay. But there's a green pointer. <clears throat> if you, if you need it, yeah, it works. Okay. Hi, I'm Phil Groves. I uh, wrote and produced uh, an IMAX documentary called Asteroid Hunters. And it's basically about planetary defense packed in a 40-minute IMAX movie. Uh, so um, my focus is on you know, how media plays a crucial role 
in uh, planetary defense, um, you know, spoiler alert, it all boils down to money. So let me explain myself. So the, there's a message that, you know, an asteroid impact is a disaster that we can actually prevent. Um, since comets were brought up as part of today's events, <laughs> I give it a quick mention, but I won't dive into that. Um, so uh, movies are weapons of mass instruction. They're really good tools for teaching and explaining very complex ideas. However, as with uh, Greek theater, uh, media has two faces. We all know this, uh, even watching the daily news, I'm sure. Um, so it's really funny, before there was even a space agency, how prescient this episode of Superman was, where since we didn't have a space agency, we only had Superman to count on to uh, deflect an asteroid in this episode. I thought it was really funny uh, that, um, that we were actually thinking about this in 1953. So the other, here's the other thing about movies. Um, they're really good at bringing to awareness an issue. So you had these, you know, Armageddon, a deep impact more recently from Netflix, uh, Don't Look Up. You, uh, you get it, you're, you're introduced to the idea of the potential risk that asteroids pose our planet. Um, the only thing is the downside is that they sort of fictionalize the idea. So you, a lot of people that I've run into on the street, they'll regard asteroids as a threat, but they believe it's only stuff that happens in a movie. Um, partly because you get guys like Bruce Willis, uh, like Joel, I think was saying earlier that, uh, you know, he gets to stand on an asteroid, whereas the laws of uh, physics don't permit the rest of us to do the same thing. So I, I made this movie to, you know, ground and make real this topic of uh, the risk that asteroids pose our planet. And a lot of documentaries talk about what was or what is. This movie had to do, really do the, those two things, but also what could be. Because, you know, when the last asteroid hit planet Earth, there weren't any cameras around um, or any other, maybe even writing uh, around to document the event. This, uh, this uh, yeah, dryer event uh, that was being talked about earlier was maybe the most recent uh, event that could have affected humanity um, in North America. So, um, you know, this, we had to have a movie that, you know, featured real scientists so that you were knowing, so that you knew as an audience that this was a real subject matter. And, and the ideas that were being discussed are, are, are factual in, uh, in their nature. And uh, we use CGI and other tools of cinema to kind of bring to as close to reality as possible these ideas. And the advantage of cinema is it takes it uses our two most important tools for learning, sight and sound. You know, we uh, we evolved to to absorb the, the environment around us through our eyes and ears, and so movies exploit this. They take advantage of this. You can take you know very complicated notions of you know how you know what are the what are the principles behind a parabola, but when you throw a ball in the air between two people, you're effectively drawing a parabola and people have an instinctive idea. If you've ever tossed a ball from one hand to the other hand, you can usually do it without even looking at your other hand and catch the ball because your brain is used to these ideas of the way physics behaves. And, uh, and similar things have even happened with orbital mechanics when you're showing it in a film. People intuitively understand these uh, very complex ideas when you're presenting them in a way that they're, 
their lizard brains can absorb. And the other thing is we can take very abstract concepts and reduce them down to very simple notions and accurately portray the dynamic of these very complex ideas through the use of cinema. And, um, and now here we get down sort of to where the rubber meets the road in terms of how media helps planetary defense, since it all involves money. Um, when you do a movie on, on the subject of, that, of planetary defense, movies have a, media has a way of breeding media. So in the case of my own film, articles were written about it. You know, even though it was only at this point, it only played a handful of theaters around the world, it was being written about. It was another way of spreading the word and evangelizing planetary defense. And uh, even social media, which is a great magnifier in its own respect, was uh, taking the awareness of this movie and, and generating an interest in the film, not just for commercial reasons, but also to introduce people to the topic. And then these, these movies play in these institutions that appeal to wide demographics, young and old, and the movies are, are you know, introducing young future planetary defenders to this idea, as well as uh, people who have gone most of their adult life having no idea that this is an issue that we can actually do something about. And it's been playing at the Kennedy Space Center, for instance, uh, through all of the pandemic just about, <laughs> in spite of that little virus, um, and uh, in other parts around the world. And it, it's a tool for uh, even scientists to use to, to talk about the subject. NASA used it for a conference that they were doing back east, and they, they, they sent them a clip from the film so they could actually talk about what happens with an asteroid impact? And they used that, the, that sequence from the film to help uh, facilitate a discussion on the subject. And you know, it's a global issue. So movies are really good at taking ideas and, and, and making boundaries, political boundaries between cultures and peoples disappear uh, because it speaks in a universal language. But so, you know, so why care? Well, this is where the money part comes up. All of this great hardware, these spacecraft, and as Joel knows, talking about his business, uh, these, these uh, probes and spacecraft that collect asteroids and, and, uh, and uh, minerals and, and water from them, uh, it, it all costs money. So where does this money come from? It comes from here when it comes to planetary defense, Congress. And so, you know, they control the purse strings. So why would Congress care? Why would they generate or uh, give money towards these, uh, this cause? Um, well, no, it's not. We don't have to threaten the White House with uh, <laughs> yeah, aliens from outer space below that building up. Um, we have the ballot box. And so when people understand the subject matter, they're going to be more inclined to vote for people who also understand the subject matter. When they can speak the language, they will turn around and have an expectation of their political leaders to likewise understand the problem. And that sort of brings us back home to we're just, you know, rinse, wash, repeat <laughs> on this. This is how you deal with the subject matter from a media standpoint. And, um, and you know, so when I set out to make this movie, my goal was to whack with the film. And so um, I hope as it plays these theaters for years and years, it'll have uh, eventually um, uh, make some small contribution towards that mission. And that's it.
don't know if there are any questions. Any questions for uh, <clears throat> Phil online? Uh, you know, I, I think I think Phil and uh, uh, the folks of his discipline um, are vital, uh, Nahum, uh, for uh, dissemination of uh, these kinds of uh, uh, these kinds of you know natural phenomena that pose a threat to our species. Thank you, Phil. Great. All right. Thank you. Uh, I think. Hold on. Phil. 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 Uh, I think Joy had the question. And... So I wonder if you've had any um, indication of interest in the film from inside the Beltway that you see. Um, well, we're uh, we're working on um, having a screening uh, at the uh, Smithsonian Air and Space IMAX Theater as soon as it reopens. They've been going through a remodeling process. So I've been talking to the folks at the planetary, uh, the uh, PDCO in DC, as well as the Smithsonian and, and a uh, lobbyist to get a screening set up for, uh, for key members of Congress, the, the leaders of the various relevant subcommittees and, uh, and, their, um, and their staff. But yeah, so there, that is a plan. It just hasn't been executed yet. Uh, talking about money, I was asked, how much does it cost to deflect an asteroid? And so my answer was, a lot less than the cost of the impact. <laughs> I don't know the numbers, but I think it's roughly in the ballpark. And I think Ken is trying to play the trailer of your movie. Is this right, Ken? Yeah, yeah, just give me a second. Oh. Okay. Just give me one second. I'll be there. And the only thing... No, 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 that's not... No, that's because not they will be had it. Oh, you're trying to screen share. Yeah, I'm trying to do the... Uh, skip, the share. One second. Requires engineers of every discipline and a lot of teamwork. No idea. <laughs> IMAX invites you, single strike, to learn. Thing that can stop it. Yeah, right. All right, so I think it's this one. Single strike could reshape our world. And the only thing that can stop it is science. It wasn't until a couple hundred years ago we even knew that asteroids existed. Finding asteroids before they find us is critical. We use telescopes to take pictures of the night sky. A moving point of light reveals an asteroid. 
We use this radio dish antenna. From the radar echo, we can determine their shape, orbit, and size. Preventing an asteroid strike requires engineers of every discipline and a lot of teamwork. No idea is too crazy. IMAX invites you to learn about the science, the technology, and the heroes who are Earth's secret weapons. So, I thank you, certificate from the AAA is given to you. One, two, three, one more. One, two, three. Thank you. Thank you, Phil. Thank you. It was a pleasure being in your movie. Looks like AC has hand up. Was that AC for NASA? Is that AC Sharon the NASA Chief Technology? AC, do you have your hands up? You have a question? Somebody's might be an old You're yeah. on mute, so you might unmute yourself. There we go. Uh, no, I'm sorry. That 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 wasn't really, uh, or it wasn't, might have been mistaken. Sorry. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Thank you. Let's see. <laughs> So while, <clears throat> while Ken is uh, working to share the screen here for the online audience, I'm reminding that uh, it's five days to actual asteroid day, which is what we are celebrating in the vicinity of this day. It's going to be next Friday, uh, in the year 1908, is when an asteroid, about 50 meters in diameter, exploded in the atmosphere over Siberia, flattened about 2,000 square kilometers of Siberian desert. And that's an area that's larger than most large cities of the world, which means that those cities will be completely incinerated in a nanosecond if nothing was done to stop that asteroid. So we are celebrating that to commemorate this event and try to raise awareness like we are doing here with uh, veterans and the next generation of planetary defenders, hopefully. So uh, let me show you a few of the things that we actually do to protect our planet. Uh, <clears throat> the first thing being the Planetary Defense Conference that Bill mentioned earlier. 
This is the website for the conference. Uh, I invite everyone to go and visit this page on the, on the internet. Uh, it includes a complete recording of the entire conference. So uh, if you uh, slide down here, you will see that the entire conference is recorded. Uh, each one of the days here is, is available for the general public. And uh, by going to the uh, conference uh, report here, or the conference program, detailed program, this, uh, you will see the talks that were presented at the conference. So if you are interested in a specific area like sensors or orbits, they are covered in one of or two of the sessions within the conference, including the presentations themselves. Uh, there is a link to it to previous conference, uh, conferences. So we are trying to establish a repository of all of the conference materials from the very first one into the future so that we create a one-stop shop for the conference. So I invite you to go visit this uh, page. We heard earlier from Amy Manzer, the first speaker, about the uh, project that he is running, uh, the new surveyor. Um, she talks a lot about it, so I won't dwell on that. But the nice thing about it is that, that because it looks at the illuminated side of those asteroids, it can do two things. It can give us sufficient warning to evacuate in case there is no time to deflect the asteroid. Instead of a no warning event like Chelyabinsk, it might give us a week. Well, with a week, we can evacuate in a city of a million people, right? So that's one benefit of having a, an early detection system. The second benefit, potential benefit, is that detecting them early, maybe one or two orbits before they come to impact with us, will give us perhaps enough time to do something about it. So I think that's a tremendous project that uh, hopefully will be successful. And within about 10 to 15 years, like Amy said, we'll ramp up our knowledge about those objects to a level where we feel a lot more comfortable about what's out there. Um, so, you must have heard about the success of DART a few months ago, which was a test. It was a demonstration that we can actually deflect an asteroid with a spacecraft. It's called a kinetic impactor. The spacecraft collided with a moon of an asteroid, like so. And the idea is brilliant. The idea is that by colliding with the moon of the asteroid, it shortens the orbital period of the smaller object, which is measurable from the Earth. We don't need to have any special spacecraft or equipment to measure the effect of the impact. In fact, we discovered that the amount of deflection that that spacecraft imparted on that smaller asteroid is much greater, three times greater than anticipated. So what does it mean in terms of practicality? It means that we have a gap in characterization of those objects. We just don't know them good enough to be able to say that we can deflect them by an amount of 10 minutes or 30 minutes. They were off by a factor of three. So the next big thing in planetary defense is characterizing those objects, how big they are, how massive are they, so that we can design the deflection mission accordingly. We don't want to deflect them partially and move it to somebody else's backyard 
somebody is going to complain or invest too much in more than to off the earth by too large of a distance, right? We want to kind of optimize the mission to the amount of asteroid that we are faced with. That was a very successful mission. It showed that you can actually impact with an object. We need more of this. <clears throat> Why three times the delta V? Who asked this? Oh, why three times the delta V? Because we were off on the estimate of the mass of the object. Oh. Right? We, for us, when we discover an object, when we try to find and characterize an object, all we see is the dot of light in the sky. You don't know how large is this object and how heavy it is from just a dot of light, a pixel of light in the sky. So they estimated it was made of some amount of maybe rocky material and it happened to be lighter. So it, was, it moved a lot more than we thought it would move based on our initial assumptions. Well, assumption is not good enough to design a mission, right? We want to have hard knowledge of how heavy is the asteroid to be able to design the mission to this particular asteroid. Can I follow that? Uh, do you know if it was density versus uh, the size of the object? The size was pretty well known, but it's probably the density. And it could be a rubble pile uh, of yeah. material, which is very porous kind of thing, just aggregate yeah. of small portions there. <clears throat> it looks as though more and more asteroid material is actually the dust bodies that look like rock. Yeah, aggregate over millions of years of small pieces that look large, but they are actually very porous, in fact. So we are talking about comets in this uh, workshop today. And uh, for the 19, 2019 Planetary Defense Conference, <coughs> uh, JPL concocted a hypothetical comet uh, threat with the claim that nothing can be done about it. Why? Well, uh, because the object approached the Earth from much above the ecliptic plane, which is the plane of the Earth around the sun. So when we launch a chemical rocket from the Earth, largely it's going to be along the ecliptic plane. We cannot have a rocket do a 90 degrees and get much outside of the ecliptic plane. It just doesn't have this capability. It will take years for the rocket to develop this type of maneuver. But that particular comet, which is typical to comets, was discovered less than two years before impact with the Earth. So what can we do? Initially, naively enough, we were trying to use chemical rockets to do that. Um, and that is a study that we did for the conference of this year. So a group of us did all of those uh, orbits and rockets. And let's see what it came up. It turns out <clears throat> that to collide with the asteroid, uh, to um, intercept the asteroid, can only be done with a chemical rocket at around two to three weeks before impact. So what can you do two to three impact, two to three weeks before impact? Practically nothing. Even if you were exploding a nuclear device next to it, it's very highly questionable whether it is beneficial or not to blow up an asteroid two weeks before it impacts with the Earth. 
with a nuclear, nuclear radiation attached to it. So obviously this was a no solution. We thought, how hard can we go to do that? So we are thinking, okay, let's see if we can use that app that Bill mentioned earlier. This is an ongoing collaboration with JPL to develop a, a physics-based asteroid or comet deflection application. It has orbital mechanics in the background. It has launch vehicle performance in the background. And we were looking at launching SLS, that's the large NASA rocket. What, how many rockets would it take to deflect that comet? And it turns out that 30 SLS rockets, may not see the number here, but it's 30, barely moved it half of the radius of the Earth which means that it's a no solution at all, regardless of the practicality of launching 30 SLS rockets on the same day, right? So chemical rockets is just not the solution here. So what can work? So we came up with this idea in which we used solar cells. Solar cells are those devices that use the solar radiation to affect the trajectory of the aircraft, of the spacecraft. Uh, and we found that if we allow a system that has fairly large area to mass ratio, apparently we are, we are approaching those kind of capabilities in the near future, then we can pack up and launch the spacecraft as close as possible to the sun to maximize the effect of the solar radiation and do the maneuver that is needed to intercept the comet, the approaching comet, at much higher distance, larger distance from the Earth than is available with chemical rockets. The way it would work is that we would use steerable solar vanes, sun vanes, which are stored into the launch vehicle and can be uh, steered in such a way to optimize the, the resulting trajectory of the spacecraft. It looks like this when it is deployed in space, and it would look like this when it is stored inside the launch vehicle. And through simulation, all physics-based, we- I think it was a screen share. It did, can you fix it? I don't know how far into the back. Okay, so we are sharing now. Is it visible online? Not yet? Yeah? Anybody online? Okay. Okay, yeah. All right, sorry. So online, I'm not sure how much you missed, but you heard the story about it. And what you see on the screen now is the result of a simulation that we have run that shows that we can intercept that comet at the distance of three astronomical units from the Earth at several months before impact with this solar cell system. So it's a, it's a physics-based solution 
engineering-wise, there is some work to be done, but it is based on the physics. And so uh, we think that it could be done one day and exploding a nuclear device next to this comet at three astronomical units several months before impact is probably preferable than two weeks before impact, right? So here is the result of the simulation that we run. Let me run it here. So as we can see here, the spacecraft is, uh, is launched from the Earth towards the sun. And as it gets close to the sun, it does several rounds of changing the plane of the spacecraft, which is something which is very, very difficult to do with propulsion methods, propulsive methods. But by using stable solar planes and um, minimizing the distance to the sun that is survivable based on research, we were able to put it in an intercept plane with the comet. After several rounds, it achieved that intercept uh, plane and it is being put on a uh, spiral trajectory that pushes it out into that three astronomical unit distance for an intercept with the approaching comet. So this is a realistic comet scenario, uh, which shows that there is a potential solution for intercepting the approaching comet and it's occurring right here. It's all physics-based and engineering-based, except for building the system, right? But the, the engineering principles, the physical principles behind that solution are valid. Yes? I'm surprised that there's it's low technology maturity readiness level. What's missing? I hope it's not we need a 20-pound nuke. <laughs> I leave it at that. You know, what's... What needs to be matured, you said. Oh, maturity? Okay, yeah. uh, survivability of the spacecraft as it gets close to the sun. This is one big question that uh, we are not sure it's solved. Sure there is a mission, what I think it's called. I'm sorry? What solar distance did you go to? I think a quarter of the, of the distance to the sun, a quarter, um, quarter solar uh, sun radius. Uh, if I remember correctly. Oh, I, I might order AU. Quarter AU, that's it. Quarter AU. Quarter AU is 16 tons. I don't think that's a I don't think that's a low TRS. Quarter. So that's an engineering problem. Yeah. Uh, there is a research that is done at UCLA, and they told us to do that. And so we did about quarter of AU, which worked for us for this solution. It's not an optimized solution. It could be that we can optimize it with additional research. We just wanted to demonstrate.